Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. I had to look at what was really making me so angry. Why was I so angry? I was just so angry, ripped to shreds. I would just stand in the middle of the room sometimes where people were around me and have to get out because I was just ready to rip the place apart. But you know, you just keep your smile on and leave graciously because you don't want them thinking you're a nutter. You're out of your head. Did you find out what you were so angry about? Finding, yeah. I talk a lot about it in this record. Hey everybody, you're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts, I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Silent All These Years, the third track from Tori's first album, Little Earthquakes. Excuse me, but can I be you for a while? My dog won't bite if you sit real still I got the Antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again Yeah, I can hear Been saved again by the garbage truck I got something to say, you know, but nothing comes Yes, I know what you think of me, you never should have Hello, David. Hi, Eve. Can I tell you something? Yeah. It's going to be kind of serious. Okay, so well, okay. Let me wipe this smile off my face. Yeah, please. Be okay. present. I'm ready. Look me in the eye. Okay. When I was driving over here to record this show with you, I had the startling realization that I felt like, let's say, under the pink eratory, when she talked about only feeling alive when she was on stage at the piano and not knowing who she was in other areas of her life. I feel like I'm only alive when I'm doing when you're this podcast. you're driving over to do the podcast. No, when I'm doing this. Well, the driving part's great, dude. Right. It's part of the process. <laughs> but I really come to life when I'm doing this show with you. I do see that in you. You do seem to come alive whenever we record. <laughs> you go from day to night, David, to night. Vid. Would you say it's effortless, that yeah. transition? Yeah, yeah. It's almost as if, you know, I press record and I look up and... <gasps> It's like a whole new woman. <laughs> I feel very intimidated, actually, because today we're recording Silent all these years. Probably one of the hardest ones we'll do. It's definitely one of the top three. It's intimidating. It has a long history. And if Tori has ever written something that we might call an anthem, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think this is it. Mm-hmm. But we're ready. I was born ready. Can you imagine if you'd been born ready to host a Tory podcast? That'd be crazy with a little baby mic. I do feel like I was born in some way to talk. I mean, we have years of history behind... Tori Amos, absorbing everything we possibly could from a very young age, from a very early stage in her career, from the beginning. We're both Little Earthquakes era. So we have just kind of absorbed everything. And I can't recall a period of fandom in my life that I waned from Tori or like wasn't paying attention. There were moments where I wasn't going on tour, but that doesn't mean I wasn't just like absorbing the interviews and absorbing the records and absorbing the this and the set lists as they came in. So I've always been there just taking it all in and that stuck somewhere in my head and now I'm ready to talk about it. And I feel the same way with you. 
It is gratifying that we were able to repurpose all those years <laughs> of obsession yeah. to hopefully shift them into something that is of value mm-hmm. to other people, mm-hmm. maybe. I agree. And I'm certainly glad we're doing it together. This is very exciting. It is. Is it possible that we think and talk about Tori more now than we did when we were 17? I think it is 100% possible. And I would say quite likely. I don't know if it's true for me. It might be about the same. In fact, it might be slightly less. <laughs> really? In terms of the amount. Like, I'm very present when we're doing it, uh-huh. but I'm not sure, like, throughout the week, let's say, that I have as much bandwidth dedicated to Tori <laughs> as I did then. It's more focused and mature now, oh, let's yeah, say. Yeah. I had yeah, to... Time and a place. Yeah. A, you know, we're adults. <laughs> We've learned well, to temper our emotions. And because I have all this knowledge in my head, if I were to have not done the show, I would just, it would die right along with me. <laughs> like no one would ever know what I know. And I know a lot. So we're here today to talk about Silent all these years. When was the first time you heard Silent all these years? I wish I could better pinpoint the time and place like I can with a handful of other songs, particularly Crucify, which we talked about at length. Mm-hmm. And... As I said on that show, I bought Little Earthquake specifically for Crucify. I just wanted that song. And I know it was quite a while before I let the album continue to play mm-hmm. until I got to the other songs. So I'm not sure exactly when that happened and how I sort of consumed, let's say, and experienced each song. How about you? Um, well, you know, my history with Little Earthquake's the album, I don't remember the moment that Tori entered my consciousness. I know that it was when I was watching much music when we had satellite TV. And I don't remember more than that, except for I remember being in CDX, which was Las Cruces's first used record store or used CD store. And I was flipping through the CDs and there was Little Earthquakes. And I pulled it up and I remember it was in a plastic sleeve because they had taken all the CDs and put them behind the counter and there were just the booklets. And I picked it up and I said, oh my God, it's that girl. I had this memory of having seen her months before in a video, and I remember being moved by that video, so I can only assume it was silent all these years because that still moves me to this day, and I really feel a connection to that video. So I think it was that, and then I bought it, and I yeah, that's what it was. Was Was it the album cover or Tori's kind of the close-up of her face in the cutout box, this kind of still. It was actually the name. The name jogged something and seeing her in the box on the album cover was very familiar. I knew, I was like, oh, it's her. Like I remember knowing her already and loving her already. How do you feel about the song in general? Like, let's start with our general feelings about the song. Yeah, well, kind of like I said, if Tori has ever written something that we might call an anthem, it's this song. This song is so ubiquitous. Let's say that some of us kind of not take it for granted, but it doesn't get as much attention from the fan base just because it's a standard, Mm -hmm. I guess, Mm -hmm. that's been around for a long time. And we kind of know it's always going to show up and it's it's an important song for sure. So I think it's an, an incredible song that I'm anxious to dive into and sort of reassess where it sits with me now Mm -hmm. this many years into my fandom and as long as we've had the song how about you right i mean you're very very right to have access at least as a listener to such greatness because if we think about it this was so important in her career and it was so important in our love of her i think that now you're right we don't honor it as much because it does show up and we're used to it being so great But if you stop and think about just how groundbreaking this song was at the time, and we're going to try to take you back there because it's important to remember the 
context of the time too when you're thinking about why this song really broke her across everywhere this and mina gun obviously but she's amazing all the time you know she's written some amazing songs so it's easy to overlook that this was one of the first and one of the really raw powerful moments from the beginning it's fascinating to me that when tori was really trying to be calculated in terms of launching her career it kind of fell flat and didn't work But when she decided to be totally authentic, that meant sort of writing songs that were unconventional and that didn't sound like anything else that was popular at the time. But that's what people responded to, I think, because the authenticity behind it was so palpable. And it's crazy to me that a song like this was a breakthrough song Mm -hmm. for her. Mm -hmm. And that it's kind of circled back several years later in 1997 um, as part of the Rain promotion. And that... I heard it every day on the radio then. Years later, that too. Not yeah. only that stations were willing to play it, but that people were really, really responding to this song. And again, it's a woman and her piano, which is what we love. But for the most part, that's not what you expect to hear in the mainstream. On radio, And she yeah. managed to cross over, for sure. So that's really incredible. And I think it's a testament to how strong the song is. And I think that's such a clear example of you never get ideal results when you're trying to please other people. Whether or not you consider yourself an artist just in life, Mm -hmm. if you're kind of doing something for yourself because it feels right to you, that's usually what gets you where you want to be. And that was certainly true in this case. Mm -hmm. And I think she saw that. She saw me being honest and me saying what's in my heart is resonating. And so I must continue to always do that. Whatever is in my heart at whatever time, I must continue to do that, to just be honest, and that will continue to resonate. And it has. It certainly has. She's never gone after the latest, greatest producer. She's never gone after, you know, trying to chase a music style the way she did before Little Earthquakes. She had done dance tracks before YKTR that have never been released, you know. she Then she did YKTR. She's, she was always trying to chase the music. And if you remember even back to Baltimore when she performed Baltimore live and then they interviewed her and she's like, I'm just really trying to make it in the music business and it's tough, you know? And she, you already feel like she's been working for a long time. Right. And she's like 14. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That teenage hustling. Yeah. I'm so, we all are so grateful that the honesty resonated and she continued to be honest Mm. throughout her career and still to this day, still to this very day. Let's take a little break. We are going to come back and we'll talk about, everything's silent all these years. We won't be silent about it, will we, David? We never shut up, some might say. (laughs) First, I'd like to say thank you to Shay Stymack and Jen Buchanan for putting together our show notes for this episode. They are part of our research team, and they are wonderful. So thank you, Shay, and thank you, Jen. Very happy to have you on board. Oh, we should also talk about our guests. Al Stewart? No. We did try to get Al Stewart, but he has not responded to our inquiry. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But if he, if ever in the future he does, we'll do a special episode. You can be guaranteed that we will do that. Our door is always open, Al Stewart. Al, if you're listening, missed out, but we'd still love to have you. So the people we're going to talk to today, two super fans of Silent All These Years, they're going to tell us their story, Cecily Link. She's a longtime listener of the show and a supporter. She's going to be on to talk about her thoughts on Silent All These Years. And we also have a gentleman named Stephen Rains coming on today to talk about his thoughts on the song. So we'll get two different perspectives on such a phenomenal song. Good. So now let's throw it to a cover, shall we? Okay. Oliver, our sound man. Let's start with the Vitamin String Quartet's cover of Silent All These Years. 
Tears. This is from their Tori Amos tribute album, Precious Things. You'll find a link to this in our show notes at songsoftoriamos.com. Um, he looked at me and said, you've never had good wine. And I went, oh my God, how do you know? <laughs> and he was just like, I can just tell. It like oozes from you, you just don't know it. And I went, oh, you know what I mean? You just go, it, you, it gets a little nerve-wracking. You don't know what you're doing wrong. And so Al Stewart, um, you know, took me to a restaurant and um, showed me wine like I'd never seen wine before and um, so I wanted to write a song for him and uh, I started to do this thing and I went to Eric who I was with and who partly produced Little Earthquakes and he didn't produce this bit so he was totally objective and he looked at me and said you're out of your mind that's your life story and I went oh so needless to say Al Stewart didn't get that song Hi, everybody. We're back. Hey. Hi. So Little Earthquakes was released January 13th, 1992 in the UK and February 25th, 1992 in the United States of America. And as we know, those are the only two countries in the world, although the United Kingdom is a bunch of countries, I've learned. (laughs) (laughs) I miss Tori's winter album releases. Yeah. I realized that there were only three, Mm -hmm. really, the Mm -hmm. first three. But for some reason, I guess because I had such enthusiasm and like such strong memories around them. I always associate her album releases with that time of year, even though she's had like 10 since then yeah. that were not released yeah. in I winter. Per- but It's funny. I prefer her fall releases, the ones that are right around my birthday. Yes. Mm. I, like Strange Little Girls was released on my birthday. Happy birthday to me. <laughs> exactly. So even though this was released on January 13th, 1992 in the United Kingdom, there's still some misinformation out there that says that it was released January 6th. So that's false as far as we can prove, but it just lends to the mythology. (laughs) But even though that happened, this song had already been released on a CD single. So there was a double A-side single for Me and a Gun and Silent All These Years. So Me and a Gun was the first single, right? And Silent All These Years was the backside of it, or the A-side, technically. Me and a Gun was the B-side of its own single, because on the cover, it said Me and a Gun, but the A-side was Silent All These Years. Things are crazy already in Toryland. No kidding. First release. And then was Silent re-released at some point later with the same album artwork, Mm -hmm. or the same single artwork, rather, as Me and a Gun? Mm Mm-hmm. 
And was the track listing the same? It was released later with the same artwork, just with a different title. Now, now it was released as Silent All These Years, the single. And that had the same track listing. Silent All These Years, Upside Down, Me and a Gun, and Thoughts. <laughs> so it's like they just changed the graphic design. <laughs> Was Me and a Gun not as successful as they would have hoped? So they sort of retooled? I can't imagine it not being as successful. What a bold choice for a first single. I know. A haunting acapella track wasn't climbing the charts. <laughs> I, I know. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was, though. It says here from the Torium Collectibles book, Me and a Gun, the hopelessly, uh, the hopelessly unlikely choice for a debut single, was released in the UK on October 21st, 1991. Tori's name did not even appear on the front of the single, only the title Me and a Gun. One of the B-sides, Silent All These Years, was added at Radio 1 in the UK and there named Record of the Week. This single would be reissued the following month, renamed Silent All These Years, with Tori's name added to the cover and a cassette single added. A title sticker was added to the 7-inch single reading Tori Amos, Silent All These Years, because that was the track that radio had picked up on. People were having trouble finding the single in stores, hence the sticker. The beautiful Upside Down would go on to become many fans' favorites B-side. Indeed, it is the only track Tori later regretted leaving off the album. Thoughts is another non-LP track, blah, 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 blah. So yes, it's already complicated and collectible land. The collectory is already having to work hard. Mm. I'm really intrigued by the idea that this song had to battle its way to be included Mm -hmm. on kind of everything. It had Mm -hmm. to battle its way into the world. It was a difficult birth. Right. Right down to the story she tells about it, um, which is kind of similar to Girl, that, you know, Girl was sort of, there was like a demo version or that she was sort of workshopping it and she threw it in a shoebox. We discussed that at length last episode. But part of the lore, if you will, of Silent All These Years was that she wrote it for someone else. And she was trying to essentially give this song away until Eric once again sat her down and forced her to listen and so said, listen, girl. yeah, this is your story. This is your song. Like someone else can't sing this. It's crazy to me that she didn't have that realization mm-hmm. on her own. So it seemed like, you know, kind of like girl, it had to battle its way into the world and it wasn't chosen as the lead single. And it would be an, a more obvious choice than me and a gun, for example, 100%. as a single. And shockingly enough, that didn't take off. And it says what you just read, that album picked up on it. So it's like, that, yeah, again, the radio things were just it. happening organically. Right. Um, as they should. As, yeah. 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 As legend would prove that they were meant mm-hmm. to. It um, seemed like this was another example of when you're pushing too hard or trying too hard to make something happen, you rarely get the results that you want. But this mm-hmm. song kind of quietly found its way to people. I agree. And I think it's also really interesting. And this is just a tiny little footnote. But I think it's really interesting that when Tori finally claimed her name in a way, I know that Tori is not her real name, but it's who she felt she was, right? Why Can't Tori Read did not have the name Tori Amos on it. Even the first pressing of the single just said me and a gun. So there was still a little bit of a shock to it, right? It didn't even have an identity or a person attached to it. It just said me and a gun with this defiant picture of a woman sitting on a chair, right? There is a shock to that. When Silent All These Years was picked up, like this is the one that's resonating, and then they put her name on there, it's like there's something so satisfying that that happened there. And it just was very, it was a proud moment to re- to look at that picture again. And it said, Tori Amos, Silent All These Years. And then it was like, there is a woman. You are, you found your voice. You are this person. Even years removed from that, where we're talking about it now, just the way you 
articulated that and described it, I could almost feel the gears locking into place. Mm -hmm. Like this is where it all really started happening and where she became who she was meant to be. The music became what it was always meant to be. That's really powerful. Chills, Tori. I just find it so interesting that this out of all the songs, which is about finding one's voice is the one that she was trying to give away and have it be sung in someone else's voice. I don't know. I agree that that's an interesting twist. And we'll get there. We'll play. We did play the quote from that was the quote that we played after the break. That was from Storytellers where she tells the Al Stewart story. It is really strange to imagine that this song would have gone to anyone else. Thank God for Eric Ross in so many ways, but particularly here. This song also appeared on the VHS Silent All These Years music video. There was a VHS release of the video. The single, of course, all the singles, the cassette singles, limited edition uh, UK single. Then in 1997, it was re-released on a single of its own for the Rain Benefit concert and the year-long campaign for Unlock the Silence with Calvin Klein. It was a single with a beautiful picture of her with her hand like pressed against her abdomen and the key graphic. Do you remember mm-hmm. the key logo? Beautiful picture. That was in 1997. Many, many more. You want to read the others? It was included on Tales of a Librarian, uh, a career retrospective that was released November 18th, 2003. Also on the original bootlegs from Royce Hall uh, in LA, April 25th, 2005, that show. It was included, of course, on a piano, the collection, Disc A, with all the other Little Earthquake songs, released September 2006, and Live at Montreux, recorded July 3rd, 1991, and July 7th, 1992. But released September 30th, 2008. Mm-hmm. You know there's a vinyl version of that? A red I do. Vinyl? I'm it's beautiful. It. You should. Do you have it? No, you need that. Oh, I need it. It then went on to appear on Three Legs and Boots, which was her 2007 live collections. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, October 30th, 2007. Fort Myers, Florida, November 17th, 2007. And Phoenix, Arizona, December 11th, 2007. Of course, reconditioned and re-recorded for Goldust, her retrospective with an orchestra, and that was in 2012. And then, little known fact, it was also on From Russia with Love, recorded in Moscow on September 3rd, 2010. And then, of course, that's not even mentioning the numerous collections and 90s collections it appears on. Everything. It, this song. <laughs> Ooh, it's got a long life. It sure does. Yeah. And we'll continue to because I think it still resonates. I'll tell you something. This woman at work, she's just started listening to Tori Amos, and I feel like her guru giving her, like, you've got to listen to it this way. And she's just discovering Little Earthquakes. And it's exciting that all of these years later, this album still can resonate with people. I love hearing that. And now you have the opportunity to mentor someone. I do. In their Tory fandom. I'm a, I'm a mentory. Mm-hmm. You guys, I'm a mentory. Shall we get to the quotes? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's start with this one. You want to you wanna take this from What's On in London, UK, October 30th, 1991. Tori says, it deals with the repression of expression and all those thoughts and feelings which remain unspoken. She elaborates. You know, Tori confides, I love living in England. The TV is good. There's lots of information. I'm learning more about the States than when I was over there. I've got loads of English mates who have a fab way with words, but you never know what they're thinking. I guess we're all a bit like that. We're taught how people should be as opposed to how they are. 
But why should the passionate tramp be a bad girl? So many people become cynical purely because they're afraid to come to terms with their own insecurities. Some people are afraid of what they might find if they try to analyze themselves too much. But you have to crawl into the wound to discover what your fears are. Once the bleeding starts, the cleansing can begin. This quote is very on brand. And it serves to note that from the beginning, our beginning with her, she's reinvented herself and reinvented herself. We talked a little bit about that. And finally, she's speaking her truth unflinchingly from the beginning of this album cycle and this press cycle. She's got a very clear message and she knows who she is and she knows what she wants to say and what she's trying to say in her music. And it's so great to look back at these and think she hasn't changed at her core, always been the same person. I agree. And this is such a concise way to articulate what the music does what the music can do not only for her but for the listener Mm -hmm. and it's about confronting and as she says in this case crawling into the wound Mm -hmm. and to me that's certainly not about wallowing in your pain or wanting to stay in that place but to heal or to really look at something you have to confront it head on you can't be in denial about it yeah so she doesn't say once the bleeding starts then we're bleeding and yay we're wallowing she says once the bleeding starts the cleansing can begin you don't want to be an emotional hemophiliac (laughs) once the bleeding starts you can't stop it the cleansing can begin is the goal to cleanse to heal right to to move past it so you've got to confront it you have to crawl inside of it you have to understand every bit about it Mm. and then you can you can be better. I'm a little taken aback by a quote like this because I think I've been fortunate in my life to have relationships and friendships with people like you. Not just fellow Tory fans, but there are a lot of people who fall into that group who I think as a community, we're very aware of how we feel and we're not necessarily about quashing down our feelings. Mm -hmm. And if we were, we sort of processed that a long time ago. Well, we learned it from mother. Yeah. And I'm not saying like that's a process that you reach some sort of level of enlightenment or whatever. Like it's certainly ongoing. But I guess what I'm trying to say is by and large, I've been around a lot of people who are very aware of how they feel and they're willing and able to talk about it. So when I read a quote like this, it sounds silly, but I'm reminded that not everybody is like that. And some people do everything they can to not have to confront the way they're feeling. Yeah. Could you imagine being one of those wretched people? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I like the way you said that, that we have the fortune, the good fortune of knowing so many people that confront their shit. You know, where I was going with that was, I I hope it didn't sound at all like I'm trying to say that I or we are highly evolved or have have any answers because I certainly don't. I'm not coming from a place of like, oh yeah, I, I, I've got my own number. I know what all my issues and all my shit is and I've healed it. Like not at all. Right. I'm aware of it. Sometimes that's all I've got right. is a base level awareness. But at least but, that, you know, yeah. at least you're aware. <laughs> right. But I will say that if you're listening to this podcast or hosting this podcast, you're highly evolved. <laughs> Especially if you're we'll listening. We'll keep that between us. Yeah. But don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone else. Um, This next quote is from Melody Maker on the 16th of November, 1991. And I tell you, Shea Stimack and Jen Buchanan have put together this incredible research document, which I love quotes from 1991. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I love a good quote regardless of the year. 91, 92. But the 91 quotes are so rare. If you could find a pre-YKTR quote where she's talking about her music, I would 
pay good money for that. It was certainly a different world back then and the yeah. way things were archived, which was not at all right. in some cases. So I'm shocked that out of all the songs, I'm seeing quotes associated with Silent that I have not necessarily seen before. Right. These were great to read. Yes. So this is from Melody Maker in November 1991. And this is where Tori's talking about the Peabody. Getting kicked out of the conservatory was so traumatic for me, it was like a bad relationship ending. At the end of that, my spirit was broken because I had been warring with myself for so long. That's what Silent All These Years is about. This idea of giving up the things you love for the sake of somebody else, whether it's teacher, parent, lover, whatever. We're taught that it's a good thing to have approval from our peers. That can get addictive to the point where you always put them first. That's what happened to me. I was 11 years old, and it seemed like my life was all over that devastation to be that young and just feel like you've got no future and you've let everybody down it comes from wanting to please people and you've been pleasing people for so long because you've been playing incredible piano and you're a prodigy and you go you know you're you've gotten into this exclusive school and everybody has the highest hopes for you and to imagine that and then look at their faces as they've decided that you're not the concert pianist they thought you were the disappointment i'm not talking about her parents necessarily i'm talking about the people at the school you know the disappointment that must have flashed across their faces to her to an 11 year old it's got to be difficult and obviously a seminal moment for her that she wrestled with in the writing of this song you know walking through these songs in order crucify girl and silent to me always have been and are kind of their own distinct ecosystems Mm -hmm. they're their own worlds for sure But reading a quote like this, there's so much thematically that they have in common. Mm. And this is something that she's really working through. And it falls here, one, two, three, in rapid succession on the album at the beginning, which feels so right for so many reasons. I don't know. It's interesting to me that she's finding different ways of expressing a similar sentiment. And she's able to do that so successfully. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, in no way would I consider Silent All These Years any kind of retread of the two songs that came before it. But again, it's all about finding your voice, letting go of trying to please other people, kind of profound moments of realization and self-actualization. Yeah. And imagine being in a wound and you're seeing one perspective of it, and that's Crucify. And then you've got your telephoto lens and you're seeing the other side and that side and all these years. You're inside, you're examining it from all angles. It doesn't feel like a retread, but you know, they are so connected thematically. And it's kind of a nice reminder that we all have our themes and our challenges that we deal with throughout our lives that kind of circle back. Mm-hmm. And you never necessarily get to a point where you're like, I'm done with that. Right. Things have a way yeah. of kind of reasserting themselves into your life. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that you've failed somehow, but you're always sort of reassessing things from a different perspective, depending on where you are. It occurred to me during our recording of the Crucify episode that she plays Crucify probably when she needs to remember not to crucify herself. Not because it was so popular and she wants to please everybody in the audience and like, let's play, you know, a big hit. I don't think it's that. I think it's she plays it when it, it seems that she plays it when she needs to remind herself. And I feel maybe the same thing with Silent when she needs that strength that Silent all these years gave her and gave us and so like you said it's not like you're ever just done you know it's not like oh i've written it i've gotten i've worked through it done no i think that she still works through it and if you think of her every time she's playing it that she's needing to work through that again then you're right you do have these themes that kind of circle back in your life at all times you can't ever just relax and say oh i'm done i'm healed now i'm happy 
I agree, and that's true of all of us, and certainly Tori, and we're able to sort of witness that play out because she's in the public eye and she's a performer, obviously. But I think what you said is so true that she plays it not only as a reminder to herself about sort of the pitfall of trying to please other people, but I also think it's kind of a mantra along with Crucify and probably a couple of other songs that remind her of, I can do this, and this is what I do well. It's galvanizing even for her at this point. And in moments like that, it's so clear to me that from her perspective, these songs really do come from someplace else. And Mm -hmm. she takes as much strength from them as the rest of us do. She's not like, oh, here's this great thing I did this one time. It's almost like this is this thing that came to me and I need it now as much as anyone else maybe. And I do think when she plays it, it's very intentional. This is not like, oh, there she goes again. Tori's on autopilot, playing silent all these years. Like she's always very present Mm -hmm. with it, I think. So I agree. I mean you want to read this quote from the Illinois Entertainer, March nineteen ninety two. I couldn't have written that song without making that last record. I went for so long not saying, not trusting myself that playing my piano was enough. And the big question is, enough for whom? From High Folks Italy, March, April, 1992. There was a time, I was about 18, 19 years old, when I was playing in clubs to live, the repertoire of other artists, and it was not easy. I felt fake. When I decided to come back to the piano and play my compositions like I did as a child, it's as if the circle was closed, a return to my artistic roots, to my true form of expression. So I revived the child in me to my most genuine and spontaneous way of being. Let's talk about those two. The big question is enough for whom? Who was she playing the piano for, right? Not trusting that my playing the piano was enough. When she was in the LA music scene, she was playing synth pads. You know, she was playing a keyboard. She wasn't doing the piano. And there's this beautiful story about how after YKTR bombed, that she went over to Cindy Marble's house and just played the piano for hours and hours and hours. And Cindy was like, damn, this is what you should be doing. Mm. And just connecting with the piano again really had a profound effect on her. And here she's saying it from high folks in March, April, 1992, that when she got back to her original form of expression, that's what was right. How she was as a child, she had that instinct as a kid, as a baby, and it took her so long to find it again. I think that's so powerful. And I think we all have our version of that. It might not always be on such a grand mythic scale as it was for Tori, where we're able to witness it play out. But I think so often in life, we have to go through something that while we're in it, it feels like a failure. But once we're through it, we see that it was kind of not meant to be, but that it was necessary to have that experience to move us to where we're supposed to be. And it would be so much easier to to just be able to leapfrog to that point. But Mm -hmm. for some reason, we're not able to do that. I think this is a perfect time to play the solo piano demo that was leaked. Um, You can see even here in the demo, she's holding out that note, that long excuse. So it was part of the DNA of the song from the beginning. Excuse me, but can I be you for one? My dog won't bite if you sit real still. I got the antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again. Yeah, I can hear it say Jeez. 
very clearly in her career that if she had not failed out of Peabody and not done YKTR, if she had always known these piano compositions are me and this is what I'm pursuing and that's it, there wouldn't have been any hardship and then there wouldn't have been any self-discovery. And what would the music be then? Like it wouldn't be from a place of examination of yourself. It would be from a place of like, I've always done this thing and it's always been great and I've always known myself. And I think it would be a little dangerous to sort of contextualize that story to say one has to suffer to be an artist. Right. But I think maybe a better way to say that is sometimes you have to know who you aren't before you can know who you are. Not that you necessarily have to experience a lot of pain and trauma in your life as a prerequisite. Right. I don't think that's true. I agree. Um, you want to read this from Keyboard Magazine in September 1992? I could tell you any load of rubbish about the way I write, and she has. <laughs> the truth is, I really don't know. Each song from Little Earthquakes came together in a completely different way. What I can say is that generally, when I'm writing, things start to flow. But still, I have to craft it. It's like I have this hunk of clay in my stomach that I'm conceiving, and it's telling me what it wants to be. But I have to put it into a language. I hear it in my head and in my stomach, but the key is translating it into feelings and words. You can taste something, but try and put that taste into words. You have to bring in forms of reference. If you've never had a papaya, well, it's kind of like such and such, instead of actually experiencing the papaya. With this record, a song like Silent All These Years has a certain storyline going on musically that's really the antithesis of what's going on verbally. It's counterpoint, pure and simple. But instead of French horns and cellos or something, it's words and music. And I find it very exciting when an acoustic instrument has its knife out and it can take on these different roles. You want to talk about that? Yeah. As I've said and will continue to say ad nauseum, I love hearing Tori talk about her creative process. And I particularly love when she's willing to acknowledge that it's not always easy breezy cover girl for her, that sometimes it's a lot of work. I sort of take that because a lot of times when we're experiencing something someone else has done, they make it seem so easy. And all we get is the perfect finished product product. and we have no visibility to all the pain, the hard work. It's gratifying to know that a genius like Tori still has to do a lot of work And whatever my version of that or your version of that, it's the same thing. Like, that doesn't mean that I'm doing something wrong or I'm not capable of doing something. Sometimes to get to the good stuff, you just have to do a lot of the hard work. 
Right. Well, it's it's like they say in the industry here in Los Angeles that it, talent, everyone's talented. It's the people who work hard that will make something of that talent. So it's the same thing here. Tori's talented. Everybody's talented. Everybody's talented somewhere. But if you don't have the drive and you don't keep working at it. Right. And I also love what she says specifically about what's going on musically isn't necessarily or actually she says it's the antithesis of what's going on verbally. I've never thought about this song in those terms, but it's so true. This song has a quiet, unassuming power. Mm -hmm. It's not in your face by any means. Mm -hmm. Not only is that effective in and of itself, but it almost forces you to listen to the words more closely yeah. than you might otherwise if musically the song was more obvious. Yeah, if the, the song were more abrasive, you might tune out a little bit and you might just kind of dismiss the mm -hmm. words. And I think in less assured, capable hands, a song about, if you just want to say glibly, a song about finding your own voice, big deal, could sound kind of trite uh -huh. or cliche, but it's anything but in this case. And it right. almost is kind of a profound epiphany revelation yeah it's a revelation right, right but it's still i'll say subtle and sophisticated it's all just about kind of that realization i sometimes i hear my voice it's not like now i'm gonna do this big amazing thing with it or it's kind of going back to what we were saying earlier in the episode about just like a level of awareness mm -hmm. and this is just that moment captured like oh i have a voice and i have something to say maybe i don't even know what that is but for a second, I got quiet and I realized that I do have a perspective and that I have a voice. Mm -hmm. um, I love what you said, too, about the kind of counterpoint. And I think you're spot on, David, about that. The song being quiet, unassuming, allows you to hear the words. Yes, I agree with that. Here's Tori talking about her music a little bit from World Cafe, May 18th, 1992. Silent All These Years is about a lot of things. I started it with this Bumblebee riff. You know, we all grew up playing. You know the Bumblebee song? I decided that that song tortured me, so I'm going to pay it back. I never grew up playing it. <laughs> well, you were playing Chopin and Mozart. I was, yeah, from... I was playing Flight of the Bumblebee. Right. That's what I was playing. I think paying it back by kind of diving into it, unpacking it. Here's this thing on the outside or the exterior that is unassuming, and let's expose it and see that even something safe and beautiful has an interior life that might not be so beautiful or might be very complex. Yeah, and I also love that story is woven into the music itself and mm -hmm. that she's repurposed something that in her words kind of haunted her mm -hmm. or tormented her as a, as a child and she's repurposing it yeah. and creating something new. I love that. I love that. Um, here's a quote from Glamour, August 1992. You want to read that one? I'm not the kind of woman who takes things sitting down. In case there was any doubt about that just as a side note she was probably sitting down at the piano when she wrote it right as we see her more often than right. in any other position <laughs> but it's okay that's how she means she meant metaphorically and emotionally thank you i wrote silent all these years because you can have a big mouth and not be saying anything i didn't know how to say fuck you to the people who knew every answer about how i should live my life i would find myself sitting with my hand on a fork and i don't know why i wanted to go for the jugular of the person across the table I didn't understand what buttons is this person pushing in me. Okay, let's talk about this here. Tori and her early press all throughout this album cycle was very, very intense. And she would talk about things and be very clear and unflinching, I said earlier. Things like I would sit with a fork in my hand wanting to rip someone's throat out at a party. You know, like, that's weird at the time, right? There was no one giving interviews like this. I can't express to you, dear young ones, 
if you're coming to Tori later, this podcast shall live on. 1992 was a wild time for Tori Press. The shock red hair, angelic looking face, giving it to you straight, saying things that might be uncomfortable to hear, but were so fucking right. I think intense, the word you used, is a good way to describe it. Because on paper, reading this, it could seem kind of maybe unnecessarily aggressive Mm -hmm. and confrontational. But she never was, nor do I think she ever really has been. Mm -hmm. She's intense in the sense that when she has a conversation with you or even like a journalist, she's very present. She's looking you in the eye. She's authentic. But she's not trying to like come for you, (laughs) so to speak. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And especially at this point, it's clear that this was all pent up. Mm -hmm. This had all been pent up for so long that Mm -hmm. she was going to show up and Mm -hmm. she was going to say what she had to say and articulate the way she was feeling. You can't promote a song called Silent All These Years and be demure about it. You have to really say what's on your mind. Mm -hmm. And that was really great. And I love what she has to say about you can have a big mouth and not be saying anything. We all know that to be true, that a lot of times the people who are the loudest really aren't saying very much at all most of the time. But I really call attention to that because it takes me back to the earlier quote, whereas I feel like this is what the song is doing. It's not loud and bombastic. It's sort of quiet and self-assured in what it has to say. And again, you're forced to sort of quiet down and pay more attention to it than you might otherwise. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Um, this also, I'm just thinking here too about the Little Earthquakes VHS, which was the first time I really got to know her. I think about it at least once a day. I know. Just these, uh, intimate moments with her and her being really intense and kind of like leaning into the camera or leaning into the journalist and like saying, you know, my knees were like water. Like, I don't know. I just, I remember that whole tape so clearly. You know what I love? Monsters are the best. Most most wonderful. wonderful. You know, it's like... like you got to fight, fight for your, your right, right to have, have a, a monster. monster. I want the rest of that conversation. <laughs> right. Like, what were they talking about? What right. was that? <laughs> um, my favorite was intake, outtake. outtake. I would say that all the time. It's like, and I would do the hand motions. Intake, outtake. Oh, God. That snippet in particular, she did seem so intense to me. Mm-hmm. When I was like 13 watching that, I was like, damn. Damn. I have to bring myself to this show, Mom. That's how mirrors can work. Right. That's how Tell me work. more about your broom and your cauldron. <laughs> doing the sniff, the sniff. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. From In Their Own Words by Bill DeMaine, interview from 1993. Tori says, silent all these years was just a beginning, but the outside voices didn't get any quieter. They just got louder. The whole last record was about finding my voice again. So it was kind of different because I had just stumbled onto things that I hadn't dealt with in 15 years thoughts i don't know that i've seen or heard this quote before and it's interesting to me that this is an under the pink era interview Mm -hmm. and she's still talking about silent all these years and i want to ask you have you seen the magazine ad for under the pink and they used the cornflake girl limited edition close-up of her sort of on her side laying in fetal position and the text on it says Many people hear voices, but very few listen or something like no, that. No, I don't and think I I've ever seen that. that was such genius marketing. And again, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in terms of just the, the role that Tori's music plays and who the people are that are drawn to it is that maybe there's just an awareness mm-hmm. of how you feel. Well, I and think you can hear a voice, but are you willing to actually listen we joked about it earlier, saying that we were more evolved, which... That was... I specifically said that we are... I'm not saying oh, we're well, more I evolved. I joked about it that we were, but... 
whether you believe that or not, you have to agree that we are, in general, more sensitive. That I will agree with. Yeah. We, we are, are more sensitive. Generally speaking, more sensitive creatures. Yes. That's an important distinction to make. I definitely feel that to be true of myself. For better or for worse, that I'm very sensitive. Same. So. I was going to say, I don't think I've ever met a Tory fan who's insensitive, but I've, I've known many, especially when it comes to a rush. <laughs> <laughs> well, something else takes hold. <laughs> I love that we're firmly in under the pink era or territory with some of these quotes, but Tory's still referencing and going back to Silent All These Years, which kind of speaks to what an important song it was and is mm -hmm. to her. From Really Deep Thoughts fanzine, issue 5, Winter, 1994, <laughs> Tori says, The whole record, Under the Pink, for me was about empowerment. These were more tools for me to hold hands with certain feelings that I wasn't getting in touch with. Once the tour was finished last year, Silent came to me and said, Oh, there's some babes here that want to talk to you. I was like, No, get out. She said, No, I think you really need to. I told her, Look, I just got off the road and I'm really not interested in talking to you right now. She says, You have to talk to me. I'm silent. Silent is kind of like the river sticks. She runs between earth and hell. She's the doorway for me. So when she brings some new babes, there's no resistance from me. So she started introducing them to me, and I had to go through emotionally what they were. I love that. Yeah. What I really pick up on is that she's the river sticks. She's the doorway for her. That this was such a, not only for us, because we, we consume it, and we hear it, and we are attached to it. But not only for us, for her as well, this was such a fundamental thing for her to write and really changed her life by writing it. And I assume playing it every night as well mm -hmm. and really crawling inside that wound for a year on that tour and really dealing with it. You know, to get to that place every night, you imagine, and she does, she delivers, you know, she's present. So to get to that place every night, you have to imagine she's dealing with some stuff. I love that she pays the song the respect to say that, okay, well, if it's coming to me in the same way that you came to me, then I've got to pay attention, mm. whether I want to go on vacation or not. Can't we do both? <laughs> and we know that Tori personifies her songs, and it's kind of like this cutesy Tori mm. thing that she does, but I'm not sure I've ever seen something like this where she's really kind of detailing a conversation almost mm -hmm. that she's having with the song mm -hmm. and that so it's I says a song her, I says. yeah so i says to a silent see <laughs> and it's a song from a prior album that's yeah. still so present for her yeah. and i like that this is kind of almost the answer or a further exploration of what comes after silent because we were saying like this is just about nothing more than the realization that you have a voice or finding your voice not necessarily what comes next mm -hmm. and under the pink is kind of the answer to that. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, now that you've worked through this, you've found your voice, we're going to go even deeper here. Are you mm -hmm. ready? And that Silent All These Years is kind of the guide. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That quote you just read, David, from Really Deep Thoughts, uh, we owe a big thanks to Valerie Lord and Aisha Polat for sending Shay, our researcher, photos of every page of Really Deep Thoughts and upside down fanzines that Shay didn't have, so she was able to mine the quotes to put a good research document together. I tell you, everyone in the collectory, which is a Facebook group for serious collectors, I'm very intimidated. I collect thoughts. I collect experiences. But they collect things and Tory things. But thank you to Valerie and Aisha for doing that for Shay. Also about that time period, this is from Ur, January 29th, 1994. She says, Around Christmas 1992, my tour ended and I went to New Mexico to rest. We were there in a 150-year-old hacienda, a sacred place for the Pueblo, and that had its effect on all of us. Silent all these years took possession of me, literally. 
All my songs are existing creatures. Her energy took possession, and my reaction to that was, no way. Silent is the gatekeeper, the sticks, the twilight zone. She told me of the babies that wanted to cross. She said, it's going to be a painful labor, or I'll help you so that it'll be easy. She lied. It didn't run smoothly at all. It came in waves, one song after another, like a religious experience. So what do you think that means when she says it took possession of her? Like, if we were going to really take that at face value, how would you describe what was going on in that situation? The essence of Silent being the way it was written, the way it came to her, the spirit behind it, and how she felt emotionally writing it, and maybe it cleansed her as she was writing it. And so I think maybe in that same way, pretty good year, right? First one to come, wasn't it? That that is giving her this feeling like there's something she's discovering about herself or needs to say, and she can't not say it she can't stay silent she has to sing this song now it's coming to her right now and she's got to honor it i think maybe that's what she means i think you're on to something and you're right for sure i'm also kind of reminded of again let's go to that little earthquakes vhs Hmm. when she's talking about here in my head it shows up and nothing else can get in when they show up it's kind of like a you know when you have to have an enchilada, you just have to have one. I think she certainly goes through phases with songs where they're very, very present for her. And she's working through something or just, and she might not even know what it is, but she's just compelled to play a song every night. And I take from this to mean that even though she was through with the album promotion, the cycle for that album and the tour, and she'd probably played that song like 200 times, if not more, mm-hmm. that she was still maybe even playing it for herself and mm-hmm. kind of dialoguing with it. And that it was sort of, again, opening the door to more songs. Like, you've found your voice. Now, what are you going to say with it? Or what are Mm -hmm. all these other untapped feelings that we're going to dive into? And just as a composer, you know, I don't necessarily know her process exactly. And maybe it is as simple as she's sitting at the piano, compelled to play that song again, even though she's on vacation tours over but she still has to go to the piano and play it Mm -hmm. and as she's playing it maybe she's riffing on it and maybe from somewhere there's a key change and then that becomes pretty good year oh i could see that yeah Yeah, and maybe that's what she means like it heralded in these other beings Mm. that she's vamping at the end or playing that melody which is itself transmuting into another song maybe it's as simple and as real as that and i wonder if I mean, she sort of jokingly said, Under the Pink wasn't my sophomore album, Little Earthquakes was, yeah. because I'd already had that first album. Yeah. But And I know what she means by that, but it's kind of not true. Right. So I wonder if she was kind of intimidated by going back to compose and feeling like maybe not having writer's block, but maybe there's always the fear that that's going to happen. And that Silent All These Years was kind of like, no, remember, remember this thing that always kind of works out and you have something to say, like, I'm going to show you that there are all these other songs that are waiting to come, something like that, maybe. I don't know. It's got to be very intimidating to have a breakthrough, worldwide breakthrough album and then have to go back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to play this quote right here because I love it. I wrote these songs from a place of not knowing if anybody would hear it. Well, I'm not stupid enough to think that the next thing I do is going to have the circumstances are different, let's put it this way, and I'd be foolish not to acknowledge that. Everything I do is going to be scrutinized, and people are dying to say I don't have it anymore. Well, you know, there are days I don't have it now, and there are days I didn't have it then. But there are days I do. So 
I can't write silent all these years anymore because I'm not silent. There are other things, though. I just want to read this quote from the Chicago Sun-Times. This is from April 26, 1996. We're jumping ahead a little bit. She says, There is no shame in self-acceptance, and I think a lot of people have a difficult time accepting that. I did, too, until I realized what I did best was something I had tried to forget, singing and playing the piano. So not directly referencing Silent All These Years, but again, the idea that once she got back to what she was, what was at her core, then it all kind of worked out. I love that she's essentially saying, you have to have enough self-acceptance to accept self-acceptance. <laughs> to also accept failure, to accept you and all of the things, you know? There's many, 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 many more quotes about Silent all these years. We couldn't possibly share them all, but we have more to share. Um, this is a quote from Nua Review, February 1994. You want to read it? In America, they wanted to use Silent All These Years for a beer commercial. What? How absurd. How absurd. That can only happen in America. It's a very sensitive song, but that's how it goes. When they can bottle something in booze or sex, they won't leave it lying there. It strikes me because I, more than others, sing openly about sex. All subtleties get lost. I can sing about the color of the skin of my lover in the morning after I've waked him with an intimate present. Present. And all that gets across in the media is makes the up your ass gesture. Picture that. What kind of beer would you pair with this song? I just, I'm still stuck on the visuals that would accompany this song in a beer commercial. I know. It's a beer for ladies. Like bikini clad babes. Could you imagine if they were trying to market break. a beer for ladies, quote unquote? Oh man, you know, I would drink it. Which is so the thing, I. so they should. Uh, so would I. I absolutely <laughs> would. I can see this in a commercial for beer for ladies. Can we, can we make a side project to bring to fruition this commercial the commercial that never was yes like we should create it lady beer yeah lady beer let's listen to tori talk a little bit about silent all these years on her own without our help for once tori you're welcome for getting the conversation going this is from uk virgin radio february 5th 1994 you must recognize that the world is a very cynical place how much of a battle do you have with the actual recording industry and the moguls therein. Well, I used to have a lot of horrible, horrible battles because um, for years they told me that this girl and her piano thing was never going to happen. I listened to what these people said after seven years of rejection letters. You know, why don't you go to college and get an education and be a teacher of music because um, you're not writing anything that, that people will ever want to listen to. After enough of that, I started to believe them. And so when they said, you know, do metal, do rock, do dance, do pop, do all of it in the same measure, whatever, I lost my passion for music. I lost my passion for life, for, for self-expression. So part of me died. When, you know, when Billboard called me a bimbo, bimbo in America being really, really a slag, meaning that you have nothing in you. There's nothing. And I took a stand on self-expression even when I was really young. And look, look what's happened to me. I've become just another sheep wanting their approval. It's so slimy. Why do I want approval from slime? So I started to write songs for me. I began to write again. This is from Modern Rock Live, January 26, 1997. It really starts with speaking up. That's why when the phrase for rain become unlocked the silence inspired by silent all these years, it just sort of made sense that silent all these years was the song 
that got played associated with the awareness of rain. And that single that you just mentioned, Silent All These Years, is being uh, re-released and I guess having a uh, another run with you as far as the high profile to connect to uh, connect to Rain. And, um, and I just wanted to thank you for taking some time out to talk to us about this and to let anyone know again that the phone number is 1-800-656-HOPE. From Fox After Breakfast on January 30th, 1997. The audio is a little bit sketchy. I wanted to talk to you about, actually about uh, Rain, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Uh, the song we saw, just a clip of, Silent All These Years, is about your own experience. Uh, well, um, the album Little Earthquakes was really about finding my own voice. Mm -hmm. I think for so long, I didn't know how to... I was taking on a lot of people's ideas of, of who I should be since I was a little girl because mm -hmm. I was playing the piano since I was two and a half mm -hmm. and uh, wasn't the concert pianist I was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. But um, I think Silent all these years is really about what is this voice going to say? Not what they want me to say, but mm -hmm. what do you really want to say? And uh, that was a big because this song just seems to be after five years people are just kind of discovering it mm -hmm. again which is exciting mm. it was forgotten about and now it's like having a new life so we're in 97 as far as the re-release of silent all these years you want to read this from billboard march 29th 1997 david with the january 97 rain concerts and the eminent high profile retail and print status of the calvin klein tie-in Atlantic surmised that Silent All These Years relevantly paralleled Rain's Unlock the Silence theme. It's a timeless idea that people need to express themselves and find a voice and not be afraid of assertion. It was ahead of its time, but I think people are more willing to hear it with every passing year, says David Sigerson, producer of the original track. This song is so dear to my heart, I was thrilled that out of the things Tori has done, this seemed the right piece of music to tie to the project. I always thought it was a hit, in different ways, without radio. So far, Silent is showing its greatest radio strength at adult top 40. There's so much reaction to this song that's very emotional and very powerful. It's making a big statement, says Michael Newman, PD of KBBT, The Beat, Portland, Oregon, which also has Silent in heavy rotation. Sometimes music comes out before its time, and that's what happened with this. Now it fits. Now it has the right feel, he says. This record has a huge, hip, underground appeal that the mass appeal audience hasn't noticed until now. She needs one to cut through, and I think this could do it. For Amos, a devout protector of art over commerce, she reportedly grilled Klein before accepting his sponsorship of Rain. The re-release signifies new light on an old, dear friend. The song is one of the consistencies in my life, she explains. Amos adds that Silent has come to symbolize personal triumph on terms of songwriting, giving her a confident base to return to when approaching subsequent works. Metaphorically, referring to her songs as girls, she explains, Silent All These Years helped usher a lot of new girls through the doorway. Now that she is getting attention, there's a lot of well-wishing from all the new girls because she taught them how to put their lipstick on. Now that she's getting her picture taken, there's no jealousy amid the troops. That song is always there for me when I need her. I love that. Sisters. That whole time was very exciting. 1997, after the tour ended and then we had the concert broadcast and then this whole like her being on the radio with this song again it was great to feel her out in the world i was rocked by it eve yeah rocked rocked <laughs> rocked i was up until this point 
my Tory, even though I'd met a lot of dear friends who were still my friends and sort of like shared our Tory fandom or whatever, it still felt very intimate and private to me. Mm-hmm. And then to suddenly see her everywhere and to hear Silent all these years on the radio, I think like K-Rock in LA was playing it every hour on the hour. And there was that campaign where they were sort of, you know, organizing radio stations across the country, like hands across America mm-hmm. to all synchronize and play Silent I at the remember same that. time. Yeah. I was like, what is happening? Right. And like, it felt like a very positive thing, of course, but it also felt like something that was very personal and private to me was being taken away a little Mm. bit, or I don't know. I never felt that way. Although I understand the impulse to feel that way because it was very personal, it was very private. And then it's funny to look back at the old news groups, archives, because you get people like, God, now she's going to be played on the radio and everybody's going to take her away. Like I get that impulse to want to protect something so sacred to you. But where I came from in Las Cruces, New Mexico... There was never any danger of her like taking over Mm. the radio. So I wasn't too worried. Or maybe I was just excited for her. Or maybe I was excited that more people would get to hear it and I'd get to talk about it with other people. Because at the time, it only in 1996, 97, I remember it only existing with me and my very close friends. We were all Tory fans. Everybody was a Tory fan in my circle. But I never felt like it was going to take over the town or everybody was going to like understand her. This period in time, it wasn't about me like kind of cleaving to it or wanting to selfishly, you know, I hide understand it, that, selfishly though. hide it from other people okay or begrudging other people, Take their it. relationship with it. Again, it was just like a weird thing to witness something that had seemed so personal and private to me mm-hmm. being experienced in large numbers and marketed yeah. to people yeah. almost. And again, not from a place of like, she's selling out or the song is being pimped, like nothing like that. It was just strange to me and strange that did you people, feel exposed yeah i did and i was also baffled that people really were responding to it because this song seems like such an unlikely hit we've talked about how in the late 90s women were getting a ton of play on the radio and we've kind of almost gone backwards now so it did fit in a little bit more then than it even would now it's ridiculous that that was almost a novelty at the time and it kind of is again like when tori played acoustic christmas mm-hmm. you know the way they packaged it was girls night out mm-hmm. we have all these female bands like isn't this crazy you might think it's never gonna work but we're <sighs> gonna stack all these ladies together and to me it was always just like oh Oh, great. Everyone I love is playing at the right, same the time. Same like, not like, oh, I'll definitely why? go. Yeah. Yeah. Here's from K Rock, 16th of May, 1997. Tori says, I'm these extreme people, and when it would come to my personal life, I would not acknowledge anything, absolutely nothing in my life. And so people that knew me would see me become like this warrior or crawl up in a little corner and not be able to even make a peep. So silent all these years really became sort of a mantra for me to learn how to speak up, which you said earlier. That it was a mantra? Yeah. Makes me feel so goofy that she like sort of... She copied you. She Yeah. <laughs> Tori. She makes my point for me. It makes it sound like I was just reading ahead and trying to pass <laughs> off Tori quotes as my own. I, no, I really think she not needs true. to come up with an original thought of her own every once in a while. And, huh, then write Tori? A, and then write a song about it. Stop stealing from David. <laughs> Here's a quote from Nua Review, February 1994. You want to read that one? We're going back to the Nua Review. I hope I'm saying that right. In most people's songs, men are always potent. Women never have their period. Rapes unexistent and orgasm vaginal or faked. They're Barbie doll songs, songs without pubic hair or obvious genitals. They don't fit anatomically. 
My songs come rather from my womb than from the heart. You know, there's some fucking going on in other people's songs, but no one ever gets into unwanted pregnancy. I sing, boy, you best pray that I bleed real soon. Right. She was confronting things that no one had ever said. To have it on the radio for mass consumption, people are hearing these things on the radio. Let's stress that. No one was saying these things. No one was singing about unwanted pregnancy. No one was singing about rape. No one was singing about these things. I can't express to you, 92 was a grunge era. There was a lot going on, male-dominated, to have this singular female voice kind of cut through. That's why she leads the pack. That's why she's the most important singer-songwriter of all time, but certainly of her generation, certainly of the 90s, early 90s, starting there. And of all the things that I want to pull from this quote, I'm most intrigued by my songs come rather from my womb than from the heart. From her womanness. I just wonder why she feels the need to make that distinction. Maybe because the heart is kind of sexless. That's interesting because you don't necessarily find that something from the heart is bad. Right. I would certainly understood if she said from the heart, not the head. Yeah. But from her being, from her essence of woman rather than her essence of human, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's not because everybody has those human desires to fuck and to like whatever, but she's coming at it from thoughts that maybe we hadn't heard. And we as men certainly don't have access to everything that she means with this quote. Tori's music is kind of undeniably and unmistakably feminine and not in the way that one might traditionally use that word. But I think that's why a lot of people have a hard time responding to it because it's so raw isn't the word I'm looking for, but honest. And and because nobody wants to let a woman and speak her mind and that's really what it is that's why people were having a hard time hearing it because they were uncomfortable that she had a lot to say and she wasn't afraid to say mm. it and she wasn't apologizing mm. for it and now i'm off my soapbox you are you no i keep it right by the couch just in case i need to get back up on there but yeah. that's what it was everybody was too afraid everybody was afraid to confront their own misogyny and their own way of treating women that when she was singing from her perspective and not afraid and not going to hide or flinch or not say it. They couldn't control it, what she was going to say. It was very scary, probably. Thank you. I got back up for a second and I'm back down. I think that's true. And that's, you know, a, a troubling thing to have to acknowledge and face. And again, I do think that what you're saying is true. But where I was going with kind of the undeniable <laughs> femininity mm. is that Tori's music comes from a very vulnerable place oh yeah that and too. some people sorry i got carried away and that makes a lot of people uncomfortable i was very vulnerable david i know you were i got carried and i away. support you that made you uncomfortable we're I living mean, it right now i know but do you agree with that i hundred i think a lot yes. of people are turned off by it because they don't want to hear anyone woman or otherwise talk about their yucky emotions because it makes them uncomfortable and it might force them to think about their yucky emotions or why they're not thinking right of their yucky emotions yeah. or what they are doing to other people mm-hmm So we've been reading a lot of quotes from 1992 and 94, trying to really get into the song. When Tori, in 2006, just decided to clarify it for everybody. I'm going to read a little bit from the liner notes for a piano in 2006. And just do a little ding when it clarifies something that she's been so vague about over the years. Tori says, Maybe because I've been living as a fish out of water for a long time, being in L.A. since I was 21, I think the mermaid mythology started to make sense to me. That idea of not fitting into the box of what a female contemporary artist should be. There was folk and there was grunge. And in either of these worlds, a place for a piano player there was not. So that goes back to her talking about how... Tracy Chapman was being was up the street and they were nurturing her career. Melissa Etheridge was up the street. They were she, they were.
were nurturing her career and they were being true to themselves. And she was in more of a commercial area. She says, I began writing Little Earthquakes around 1988. Musically, we were coming out of a time with a lot of emphasis on Depeche Mode and into a time of Nirvana. If you fit into that in land or in sea, you had a home. But being a contemporary piano player wasn't working within the music business because I wasn't aiming towards a definable category. I had one foot in the classical world I'd been trained in and one foot in a contemporary world that I was passionate about. But I had to find a way to stay true to what I really was because I'd already suffered the misstep of trying to become what everyone else wanted me to become. I could talk myself into anything. If you can play by ear, if you can hear something and play it back verbatim, then you can start talking yourself into it. So I get that, like it's your genre, like, oh, I can play this, like I can do that, I mm. can do, yeah, like, oh, what do you need, what do you need, you need a pop star, you need a rock star, what do you, what do you need? But just because you can do it doesn't mean you should, that was a really big lesson. Therefore, I had to start forcing myself to put parameters on my style so that I wouldn't be influenced by people telling me they would only support what they knew they could sell. I decided I had to be. I had to accept that I was what I was, so flesh from the navel up and scaly from the navel down. Therefore, writing Silent all these years was foundational. I started writing it for Al Stewart, the melody, not the lyrics. Ding! (laughs) Because he'd asked me to write something. I allowed myself to find my voice for somebody else, but not for myself. Then Eric Ross made me ask myself the question, how could I give a song like that away? So as I started to claim it as my own, I was able to write the words around it. I think this song became my mantra. As a child with a dream to use her musical vision, I had been silenced by my ambition to have a career beyond the barrooms where people spilled cocktails all over the piano. While writing Silent, I decided that even if I had to go back to a life of performing standards in piano bars, I would rather do that than live a musical life creating music that I couldn't wear well. Silent was almost a talisman, which brings me back to the tale and the mermaid mythology. So with that, you want to get into the line by line? What is this a piano? Sounds like a nice little package. Maybe I should pick that up. Yeah, you should. It's got a lot of words inside. <laughs> Excuse me, but can I be you for a while? Right away we get the song is in first person. Excuse me. She's a character. And we know right away it's between two people. Do you read this line as polite? Like, pardon me? Or is it more like in a aggressive way? I definitely don't see it as aggressive, nor would I say polite. It's more sort of timid and coming from almost sort of wounded childlike place. Like, I just need to kind of tap you on the shoulder for your attention. Why do you suppose she wants to be the other person? I think there's kind of a moment of looking out at someone else's life and feeling like they have it easier than you do and wanting just to escape, even if it's for a day. Like that sentiment of, can I just be you for a while? How about you? Yeah, I agree. You seem to have it together. And I would love to spend a moment in your shoes. My dog won't bite if you sit real still. To me, the dog isn't a creature. The dog is this anxiety, this thing on you. Mm-hmm. If you just don't move, if you keep still, maybe all of these bad thoughts won't come into your head if you sit real still. Certainly not a literal dog, which is what you're saying. Right. To me, the dog is that part that's maybe protecting Tori, the wounded young part of her that might turn on anyone who threatens her or attack them. In this moment, she's kind of craving intimacy and beckoning someone to just get close to her, but not, you know, to move too quickly, but to sort of slowly approach. Mm-hmm without scaring her off. I love the idea of the dog as the protector Mm. or someone who's looking out for her, the wounded side of herself that does lash out if she feels attacked or if you're treading too Mm -hmm. too quickly. 
I'm also taken back, of course, to there's a reference to a dog in Crucify. Mm-hmm. You know, got a kick for a dog, begging for love. And this might seem a little silly, but one could almost imagine that this is the same dog a little further down the line yeah. who suffered from some kind of neglect or abuse. Um, and now it's going to respond strongly to any kind of threat. I love that. I love tracking the dog. Dog Watch 2019. You can bring yours. We got three. I got the Antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again. Yeah, I can hear. What do you think of when you read this line? Who is the Antichrist to you? The man that she's with. The person in the relationship who will eventually say he's found a girl who thinks really deep thoughts. That same character. Which might even be you. Hey, excuse me, can I be you for a while? There are references in other parts of the song that would sort of place this song a little removed from childhood, like Uh more like adolescence or like later teen years. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it for me is still very much rooted in childhood. And to me, this is a parental figure or even um, maybe the grandmother that Mm -hmm. she's talked a lot about. Um, To a young child, that kind of imposing presence would be the antichrist i used to feel the same way as you do it was always about my mother yelling at me in the kitchen or like that i see very clearly as it is rooted in her younger years her formative years Mm -hmm. what do you think is being yelled you know kind of relentless criticism or judgment having all of your actions and choices being questioned or being made to feel guilty for something that's kind of the lens through which i've always read that line or experienced that line been saved again by the garbage truck. I love this line because it implies that she was unable to speak and the garbage truck rolled by and drowned out the silence and then she was able to not have to speak. Mm-hmm. There was a distraction. Yeah. It's very visceral. It's like, to me, it seems like there's a story being told, a literal something is going on in the space, in the room. They're in the kitchen, they're having an argument or she's being yelled at and then you feel that garbage truck roll by and you're kind of relieved, been saved again. I'm with you in in terms of the sound of the garbage truck drowning something out or sort of relieving you from a conversation or a confrontation that you don't want to have. But I've also always kind of looked at it as the possibility of the garbage truck maybe taking something away. Like maybe she Mm. or one has engaged in some kind of behavior that's left evidence they want to get rid of and the garbage truck has come and taken it away, whatever that might be. I can honestly say I've never thought that, but Mm. I love that image. I got something to say, you know, but nothing comes. Story of my life. And I think the thesis statement of the song. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know what you think of me. You never should have. Yeah, I can hear that. First, I love the refrain of, yeah, I can hear that coming back. There's something really pleasing about it, that it appears twice in this verse. And we can only assume that what you think of me, what this person thinks of her is not pleasant, is not something that she's happy about, or they're obviously not happy with her. It's interesting that there's a conversation or a dialogue happening here in this moment, but we're only getting one side of it, Mm -hmm. right? Like she's responding to something almost that we're not hearing. Yeah, I can hear that. Yes, I know what you think of me. But we're only getting the one side of the conversation, right? Which is great because it puts you in her head. Right. And like you are are her in the song. It's such an intimate transference Mm -hmm. that you can place yourself in this conversation. Yeah, and that's what takes me back to a parental relationship maybe. We all remember or have experienced what it's like to be a kid or a teenager where... 
um, your parents or whatever the authority figure is, is sort of maybe reading you the riot act and calling you out on everything they think you're doing wrong or mistakes you've made. And you're not in a position to respond. You're just kind of being disciplined or sitting there with your arms crossed listening. And the dialogue in your head is, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Right. You never so I feel like up. that's right. Yeah. What we're getting here. Absolutely. What if I'm a mermaid? Let's talk about mermaidism. Mermaid-o- I call it mermaidery. Mermaidography. <laughs> mermaidology. I like mermaidery. Mermaidery is cute, but mermaidology is the, is the scientific term. Is it? Okay. Let's Are talk- you a mermaidologist? Well, I was going to study it in college. Mermologist? Yeah, but they didn't offer it at New Mexico State. Well, it's not close to the water. What if I'm a mermaid? I have to say, you know, over the years with this album, I'd never given a lot of thought to the references to the little mermaid specifically the disney version Mm -hmm. that was released not too long before this album came out (laughs) (laughs) um so i would imagine that she saw it but um have you seen at some point someone got a hold of a notebook where she was sort of doodling and working on lyrics and she was actually doing writing in a little mermaid notebook like a Disney licensed oh, yeah. Little Mermaid yeah. notebook. So that character and that specific version of it had more of a presence maybe on this album or as the album was coming together than I would have even realized necessarily. There's something so cute about that. I like know. Knowing that she was writing these really profound lyrics in a Little Mermaid notebook, that these were just thoughts going through her head. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And it's so relatable. Mm-hmm. No matter what phase in your life you are what age you are i feel like we as a community as a fan base have all felt like we were that awkward girl like scribbling Mm -hmm. our you know deepest thoughts and feelings in a little mermaid journal Mm -hmm. (laughs) of some kind yeah um there's a quote from rolling stone on december 18th 2009 she says so i was with my niece cody who was a little girl at the time and she's very much a part of silent all these years because she loved fairy tales and stories and we would share the little mermaid story Hans Christian Andersen, and the idea that she'd lost her voice, and watching Cody respond to this young woman giving up her essence and power all for something else, and in that moment, I realized that when she had no voice, that just completely took me to the place where I needed to go to reclaim it. So very literally, being inspired by someone or a character that has no voice, that loses her voice literally Mm -hmm. in The Little Mermaid, whether it's the Disney version, or she seems to imply here, the Hans Christian Andersen version, which we all scholars, all, you sure. know. Sure. Keep yes. it classy. Yeah, absolutely. Disney who? Walt who? No, <laughs> never heard of him. In these jeans of his with her name still on it. But- so this implies to me that she's silly, but a fish out of water. She's a mermaid in his jeans. She doesn't belong in these jeans of his. You know, like when women wear their boyfriend's sweater or their boyfriend's clothes. This is what always it comes to mind. Yeah. That she's wearing his jeans, knowing they've got some other girl's name on them. He still belongs to someone else, but she's there somehow out of water in these jeans. Mm-hmm. And this is really ridiculous, but because the mermaid reference is paired with the jeans, in my mind, I've always imagined that the jeans are too big mm-hmm. and that the way they sit on her, they're kind of like approximating a tail too. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. I always thought that they were showing her mermaid, like the beginning of her tail, you know, like the Adonis belt, but like mm-hmm. where the, where her tail begins, the mermaid in these jeans, isn't that just like a classic Tory image? Yes. A mermaid in these jeans. Like that is, I think where it all began, this strange imagery. Mm-hmm. And you know, early on, obviously Tory had a reputation for being kind of, 
whimsical, I guess. Yeah, someone just said kooky. Kooky, whimsical. And that's something that I never related to or perceived her to be. Me either. But I could see why, like, just glancing over the... You're like, oh, she's referencing a mermaid, whatever. And, like, I kind of get that. But to me, there was nothing in this song that's kind of cutesy. Let's go back to the interview that we talked about earlier where you got to fight for your right to have a monster, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people were saying she's kooky or this fairy talk. But, like, I got that on such a deep level that it made me realize, like oh my God, I'm weird and no one gets me and this woman gets me. And it really only strengthened my connection to her and the music. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Oh, it's all so clear. We should do a podcast about it. Well, let's finish this one first. We'll figure that out. But I like that it's almost, it's a question she's asking or she's flirting with the idea of what if I'm a mermaid, not I am. So is she entertaining that her idea herself? To me, it's almost like, what if I'm a mermaid? Like there's some sort of untapped potential or something special about me that I haven't figured out mm. yet that's wanting to be expressed, mm-hmm. right? But also that feeling of not belonging. And that would and explain why, why I don't be- I feel have that feeling of not belonging because mm-hmm. if I'm a mermaid, then that would explain why I feel out of place in his jeans. Yes. Wow. I don't care. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, whose name is on these jeans? Who they cares? look good. <laughs> <laughs> but why doesn't she care? I must get the odd visual of She's flirting with all these big ideas and there's almost like a buildup starting to happen. And what if I'm a mermaid? What if, what if? And it's almost like the iris of a camera expanding and then it's contracting. And it's like, but none of that really matters in this moment. All that really matters is that I have a voice and sometimes I can hear it and it's trying to tell me something. I don't need to put pressure on myself to have like this big revelation or any kind of epiphany about who I am or what I'm going to be. It's that I have a voice. I don't know. Does that make mm, sense? Yeah. That it starts small. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I said, sometimes I hear my voice and it's been here. And I like the repetition of sometimes. I said sometimes. Not all the time. And it's clear. Her voice is faint, but I can hear it. Silent all these years. How old is she when this is being written? 28, 27, 28, yeah. Mm-hmm. So been silent all of these years. That's terrible. I love that vulnerability and the sometimes. It, this is not like a big dramatic claiming of power and mm-hmm. self and voice. Mm-hmm. It's so honest mm-hmm. about what it feels like to be in that moment or that phase of your life. Yeah. So you found a girl who thinks really deep thoughts. What's so amazing about really deep thoughts? Boy, you best pray that I bleed real soon. How's that thought for you? I don't get this line. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Again, at this time in the music scene, to be on the radio or to even be a single, things like this weren't said. She's mm-hmm. obviously talking about, you may have gotten me pregnant. You better hope that I have my period right. and you better hope that I'm not pregnant. And how's that thought? Like this girl, this deep girl that you that you found, deep girl, deep thoughts. But let's be real. Like this is the deepest thought you're going to get all day. Mm. And I love that confrontation. And this line is so effective because it's so stark. You know, she doesn't mince words, obviously, but it's so kind of out of step with the the way the rest of the song right. is written that you're like, whoa, where's that coming from? Which yeah. is so the intention of it. And it's so effective. Yeah. Because we have this sort of one-sided conversation and we have this sort of whimsical moment in the chorus. And then it's like, okay, now it's my turn to talk to you. Everything that you've heard before has just been in my head, but now I'm going to say something 
and you feel like she's saying it to him. My screen got lost in a paper cup. So we're talking about she's ended up pregnant. It feels to me that that's where the narrative is headed. She's ended up pregnant and she's going to have an abortion. Really? Is that not what you think? Not personally. Really? To me, that thread kind of ends with that statement and then we move on. I don't feel like the idea of pregnancy is woven throughout the rest of this song. For me personally, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it. Well, I've always looked at this next verse. Let's play the whole thing. My screen got lost in a paper cup. Think there's a heaven where some screams have gone. I got 25 bucks and a cracker. Do you think it's enough? Bear with me, and I'm just going to give my thought on where it goes narratively, that she's now in a waiting room of some kind with a paper cup. Her scream got lost. Her voice again has been stifled. The scree- the baby. And I think that the reference of going to heaven, I think that she's, you think there's a heaven where some screams have gone. I don't know. If, I think that has to do with the baby. I got 25 bucks and a cracker. Do you think it's enough? It's not enough to get you an abortion or to get you into a clinic or whatever's happening Mm -hmm. there. And I've always thought this was carrying on that first bit only because a cracker, something to settle your stomach, the 25 bucks, where does that come from? Why do we need the money suddenly? And she seems to be having this dialogue with someone. My scream got lost in a paper cup. If she is pregnant and she has decided to terminate it, that's another part of her voice or another thing that she's lost of herself. I can see that. I can certainly see the scream being a scream of grief. The line, you think there's a heaven where some screams have gone. Is that a question? Is there a question mark at the end of that line to you? Yes. Or is she sort of echoing someone else's belief? Like, you think there's a heaven? Or is she asking for reassurance? Like, you think there's a heaven? Will you tell me, please, that there's a heaven where some screams have gone? Yeah, I think she's looking for reassurance. What did you think of that verse then? Yeah, it just took me back to, I got something to say, but nothing comes. Uh And it's just that welling up of needing to voice or express something. And for whatever reason, not quite being able to get there. But tell me that if I never get there, if I'm never able to sort of pull these thoughts and ideas out, tell me that they'll go on to have some kind of life somewhere else. I was never really attached to any kind of pregnancy narrative in the song and i think a lot of that is certainly colored by my experience or perspective sure um i certainly see like where one could interpret these lines that way it's pretty clear no that's what do you think of the 25 bucks in a cracker just the idea of wanting to escape from something or better your situation or move on to the next opportunity or the next version of yourself and not knowing how you're going to do that and feeling like your resources are really limited and feeling trapped, I guess. Like, this right. is this is the best I got, 25 bucks and a cracker. Like, how far is this going to get me? I can almost picture someone, you know, like at a bus station or something, like trying to get a ticket out, out of this goddamn shitty little town. Right. Um, yeah. So what if I'm a then it's almost, I don't want to say pleading, but it's like, what if I'm a mermaid? I'm meant for Better bigger things, things yeah. than this. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny that it feels that way with no lyrical change. This is kind of like an ultimatum too. I, I read these this bridge. Years will go by. Am I still going to be here? Or am I going to do something about it? Mm-hmm. Is the unvoiced implication or unvoiced ultimatum to me. How is that an ultimatum? Can you say more about that? 
Um, yeah, she's got the gift of being able to see into the future for whatever reason, because of whatever happened to me. I think it's this pregnancy that's been terminated and she sees into the future. Like this is how it's going to be. If I don't use my voice now, years will go by and I'll still be here in this position waiting for somebody else to get me ultimatum to self, not to, to someone self. else. Yes, yeah. I get that. Years go by from stripped of my beauty on the orange clouds raining in my like she's seeing this through. She's saying that years are going to go by and I'm still going to be waiting. No one's going to come. I'm going to be old. I'm going to be stripped of my beauty and my creative power and my piano playing. Everything that's great about me will be gone. There will be nothing left. Years go by will I choke on my tears till finally there is nothing left. One more casualty. She's just one more casualty. She's ended up with nothing. She's become nothing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, are you going to let this happen? Or or are you going to take that first step to use your voice? Are you going to say that first word? I love this kind of crashing kaleidoscopic moment where it's almost like the doors of the song mm-hmm. are blown off. And there's such yearning, such vulnerability in it. It's, again, going back to that, like, what if there's more? I hope there's more. I feel like there's more. But what if I'm never able to experience that? or attain that. Kind of like you were saying, what if I'm perpetually stuck in this place where I just want someone else to understand how I'm feeling? And I think we, of course, have all felt that way. And again, it so encapsulates what it feels like to be a teenager or a kid when you have all these complex feelings and you feel like no one can possibly relate to you or really understand what you're going through. What do you think she means by we're too easy, easy, easy? I almost hear it as what if I'm just another person who gives in to these feelings of self-doubt and not enoughness and I sabotage myself and I'm never able to pull myself out of whatever this situation is. It's so easy to fall into that trap and I would just be one more person who did that. Right. I love how the song kind of out of the blue explodes and then as quickly as it came sort of retracts and retreats. It's almost Mm -hmm. like a big bang or like a huge crashing wave that recedes as quickly as it came. And you're almost like, wait, what? But you're left at the end of the bridge. You're left with another, that sound that kind of keeps time that wasn't there before. There's like a string pluck. Yeah. It's a pluck. That on the remastered versions, it's a lot more pronounced, but there's also, and it's not just here in this moment, I guess, but there is like the triangle Mm -hmm. ting, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is part of what you're talking about too. Yeah. But there's almost like a pulse. It's reminding you and it's keeping time. It's mm-hmm. saying time is almost up. I love the way we communicate. Does she though? I Are you sensing some sarcasm here? Your eyes focus on my funny lip shape. Can I just share that before I really examine the lyrics when I was just listening to the songs? I always heard your eyes focus on my funny lampshade. <laughs> what kind of crazy lampshade did she have? Can't take your eyes off it. So her funny lip shape, he's not looking her in the eyes. You think she's being sarcastic, like, I love the way we communicate. You're not hearing me at all, or maybe we're not even talking, or I'm talking, and your eyes are just zoning out and kind of absent-mindedly staring at my lower lip. Yeah, but I don't think it's absent-minded. I think he's, like, waiting for her to speak because she's not moving her lips because they're not talking. She says everything she needs to say with a look. Let's hear what you think of me now, but baby, don't look up. 
So something has changed. I don't mean to be indelicate, but this is why I've always felt it was about an abortion or pregnancy gone wrong, because something clearly has changed here. And not just the bridge where she realizes something was the impetus for that bridge to happen. You know, something happened with this person that made her realize, like, you got to get out now. You have to do something with yourself and your potential and your life and your voice. Now she's saying, let's hear what you think of me now. So something's changed. Yes, I can hear what you're saying. Yes, I know what you think of me. Let's hear what you think of me now. Because there's been a journey of some kind, some change in their relationship. And all she needs is him to say something, and then she can walk away, I think. I just have a hard time because this is such a pivotal song in Tori's catalog. and We described it as an anthem of sorts, and it's about finding one's voice. I just have a hard time reconciling that theme or that idea that's being explored with also the song holding the strong narrative thread of a pregnancy. And I'm not sure in this moment, at least, how those two things fit Mm -hmm. so strongly Mm -hmm. together and why that would be so present in this song. Mm -hmm. Again, to me, and I'm not saying that's not true, I'm not saying that at all, but to me, that's the sentiment or that reference has always stopped short with that you best pray that I bleed real soon reference and then we're off exploring something else. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's necessarily about a pregnancy. That may just be one possible interpretation of it. I get that it's hard to reconcile. I just don't know why I feel that way. This song has just never felt very linear to me. I almost feel like we're being guided through. It's almost episodic, like we're being given these snapshots of moments in time from various stages of her life where she felt like she was powerless or wasn't able to say what she was feeling or to speak up for herself. And we have in the kitchen, maybe as a kid, this moment with the pregnancy of some kind, what's a little further along. And to me, this is like another relationship moment Mm -hmm. where we're questioning like our ability to communicate as a couple. Mm -hmm. Those things aren't all linked to me in the song. This isn't like one one story. Yeah, fair. fair. To me. No, I mean, I could certainly see how one could interpret it that way. I didn't mean to imply that I thought this was about the same person necessarily, but that she's changed after the bridge. And now it's like, say those things to me that you were saying earlier, say them again, because my thought about myself is changing. And maybe I need that fuel to finally speak up. Baby, don't look up. The sky is falling. She's crying, right? Is that what you see? The world is crumbling around her. Yeah, this feels like we're in the middle of a breakup. Yeah, something's ending. To me, right? This is it. Let me have it. Tell me what you really think of me. Our world is crashing down around us. So don't look up because, you know, the sky is falling. Just stay here. Well, I link that back to your eyes focus on my funny lip shape and don't look up into my eyes because the sky is falling. You can see my blue eyes are crying. The sky being her eyes. Your mother shows up in a nasty dress. My thought on that nasty dress was so different than the video's interpretation of the nasty dress. In the video, you mean it's like a frumpy old lady dress or something? Yeah. And you were thinking nasty, like inappropriate? Yeah, because my mother, because when I was a kid, I did link this back to my mother. Obviously, she says your mother shows up in a nasty dress. My mom was very young. So my mom, my mom was in her like 20s, you know, so she would go out and party and she'd like dress up. It was the 90s. People were dressing (laughs) crazy. I imagined the nasty dress very differently. You? Yeah, I never, I I think it makes more sense the way you're describing it, but I always sort of, and I don't necessarily think my perception was being colored by the video, but it must have been Mm -hmm. on some level, because I always sort of thought of it as a frumpy, just inappropriate, kind of embarrassing dress. It's your turn now to stand where I stand, everybody looking at you. 
so whatever the dress is, we agree that it's embarrassing AF. Mm-hmm. Why is her, his mother or the other person's mother showing up in a nasty dress suddenly? Like, what is happening here? How do we get here? I'm not sure this is really pivotal to a read of this song, but I've always sort of seen it as like, we've broken up, but we had this obligation or something we'd agreed to attend together as a couple. And we have to kind of suffer through it. And also, like, your mom shows up and embarrasses us with what she's wearing. I also link this back to the beginning. I'm sitting here quiet, and you're just shouting your opinions of me at me. I have no room to speak. Therefore, I'm embarrassed. And now here you are embarrassed. And now you're in this position where you can't speak mm. for whatever reason. And what does she do? You take hold of my hand. Yeah, I can hear them. She offers her hand. She offers her hand. And I love that because it's almost like she's extending a gesture of compassion that she was never given, but Mm. she's still willing to do that for someone else. Mm -hmm. Because she can hear them. Mm -hmm. She knows what it's like. Yeah. Oh, that's what Uh, makes her great. Tori. God, that was exhausting. Take our hands, Tori. Can I ask you something else? Is it about silent all these years? So we have that quote um, where Tori's talking about kind of the music scene in Los Angeles and the challenges she was facing. And she specifically references Melissa Etheridge, more importantly in this case, Tracy Chapman, as women across town who were kind of doing their thing and being supported. Talking about the song with you now, I can't help but almost hear the influence of Fast Car. Almost, right? On this song. Yeah. And I'm almost wondering if this is kind of one of the first examples of Tori really stepping into the role of storyteller. And yes, this is a very personal song. Yes, she's very present in it. But I'm wondering if some of these references aren't necessarily cold from her personal Mm -hmm. experience. The 25 bucks in a cracker, do you think it's enough? I feel like that's so closely aligned with some of the lyrics from Fast Car Mm -hmm. and wanting to get out, wanting to move on, Mm -hmm. leave tonight or live and die this way. Like we've got one shot. This is what we've got. Are we going to get out of here or am I going to end up working at the grocery store? Right. I support your thought on that because there's something in the rhythm of it, but I can't quite explain. We're going to start with our musical analysis. This is thanks to Yanta. We're listening to Yanta's cover, which you can support him by going to patreon.com slash Yanta, and you should because his transcriptions are incredible. So here we go. Here's the bumblebee piano tinkle that she's referenced. There's something almost eerie about it to me. It's not like the comfort of a childhood song, but there's something that's a little off-putting about it. Final note in the repetition comes off at a weird place and it kind of throws everything off in a way. Supporting that the music is in juxtaposition to the lyrics, but that there's something kind of, like you said, eerie, but also broken. Tori has talked about, you know, sonic structure when she's writing a song or that the moment of a chorus can be almost walking into a room or when a world kind of opens. And I feel like we get that with the chorus of this song. It feels almost like um, a tidal wave washing over you and kind of clearing things out. It's so pure to me somehow. And then it goes, it reduces down to that one note at the beginning of the second verse, you know?
I think I so heavily rely on the melody of the words that the music is really surprising me just to hear it without the words. returning to that you know that melody line the arrangement and let's say the production of this song is relatively simple in the sense that we wouldn't call it a band song it's primarily piano and there's some strings in there but still when that chorus hits it's a wall of sound with the layered vocals and everything going on so to hear that kind of stripped away and just the piano playing under it is really striking on the melody line that resolves the song. Something's different now. Yes. It's almost like an exhale. Yeah. And up until that point... Shoop. When we've reached that moment, the song almost halts. Mm -hmm. And, and goes here, back. yeah, it halts and goes back. Yeah, you're right. And there, it's like, <sighs> and we're finally able to speak. You know what, David? That song, that's your life story. You can't give that away. Thank you, Yanta. We couldn't bring you these wonderful, just sort of stripped away moments without Yanta, because as we know, Tori doesn't have many instrumental versions of her songs, especially from this era. So thank you to you. Please support him at patreon.com slash Yanta. Let's take a break. We'll Once be right Tori back. found her voice, she couldn't get enough of it. She's so enamored by it. She remasters a track. She's like, bump up my vocal. Yeah, louder. Drown out that other shit. This is a cover of Silent All These Years by Vivid Voices.
This is the first video Cindy and I did together. We were quite close at this point. We were forming a bond, and I guess I was able to sing and reveal things because there was a trust level and a respect level. This was really Cindy's vision. All this, um, you know, the details, every detail came from Cindy's mind. We would talk for hours and hours and hours, eat dinner together, hang out at her house. So things like the metallic and gold-looking elements meant something to her. But to hear her speak and talk about it, of course, it made sense. And when I saw it, I felt it. So that was a little bit from the commentary. Let's talk about this beautiful video. What was your first conscious memory of seeing this video? It must have been when I bought that little Earthquakes VHS. I certainly don't think I ever saw it on MTV or any place like that. I have a hard time sort of separating this video from the album as a whole, and particularly the artwork, because the artwork, at least that's included in the booklet, is all cold from the video. There's very little else, except for like, you know, that photo shoot of her sitting in the chair mm -hmm. from the silent single and Mina Gun. All the other artwork from this album is pulled from this video, pretty right. much. It's interesting that she says in the commentary, this is what she says. I will say that rolling around in a box was not the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. But I have been photographed in this box by Cindy Palmano. So I feel like maybe that sparked thoughts on the video. Maybe the photo shoot was a different day as the video shoot. Mm -hmm. But it could have been all the same day and it could have all been... Was this her first video mm -hmm. or was Crucify mm -hmm. first? This was her first video. Crucify okay. came way later. Okay. Yeah. All right. Certainly my strongest feeling about this video, I probably consciously remember it for the first time from the Little Earthquakes VHS as well. But what resonates with me every time and whenever I think of this video, I think of the end of the video. First, I think of how gritty it is that it was shot on film it has this grainy gritty quality to it which that itself kind of is in juxtaposition to the music the storyline of the music is at war with the story going on verbally but also it having this grainy quality to it or this really gritty kind of street quality to it is really antithetical to what you're seeing this beautiful woman this beautiful music so it's kind of arresting in that way. But the thing that sits with me always is that last 45 second shot of her face and every emotion that is conveyed in her eyes. You go from sort of defiant, pleading. At one point, it looks like she's about to break down with just like a, a, a furrow of her brow. But then we end with, this is who I am. I wouldn't say a smirk, but just kind of like a an acceptance of I'm, I'm me and I'm here. Yeah, and that final moment of kind of, you're right, it's not a smirk. It's almost like a sly, sheepish. Yeah, sheepish. Grin? Not grin, because that's too strong a word. It's so subtle. It seems like they're holding on a still frame mm -hmm, for quite some time, yeah. but it's not. And then you can kind of just see the corner of her mouth curl up if you're watching closely. Mm -hmm. Like the song itself, it kind of pulls you in and demands that you pay close attention to what's going on. Yeah, and it's very unapologetic to have a close-up of your face go on that long and not be afraid of it. That's a big deal, too. Not only is that, you know, a vulnerability on her part, I guess, but you do feel like she's looking at you. Yeah. 
and you almost want to look away. It's like, how can a recorded video make me feel kind of awkward? Like, okay, is she going to keep looking, <laughs> looking at, me? at me? Yeah. yeah. Um, Cindy Palmano, Tori talks about how they went on for hours. They talked for hours over dinner about this video and that she, it was, she was a co-collaborator, that they collaborated together on this video, that Cindy, a lot of this imagery was from her thoughts on the song. We, of course, tried to get Cindy Palmano, the elusive Cindy Palmano. We tried to get her for the show, but we have yet to contact her. Not giving up. We are not giving up. No way. But yeah, I love this video. I think it's a great first video. It goes without saying that their, meaning Tori and Cindy's collaboration, was extremely powerful and yielded images that we're still talking about and still papering our walls with in some cases. But just hearing Tori talk about it, it's so clear that there was a tremendous amount of respect, but more importantly, even trust between them, trust on the part of Tori. Tori has really collaborated so rarely in the grand scheme of things with other artists or even musicians. And for her to really be willing to do that, it absolutely requires a tremendous amount of respect Mm -hmm. on her part. And I would say their partnership has never been matched right. throughout the rest of her career. Not only a tremendous amount of respect given, but also received mm. because how can you trust someone to let your guard down if you f- don't feel that they respect you? Right. There's a quote about the little girl in the video. Do you want to read it, David? Tori says, aren't you going to ask me who Poppy is? This is around 94 when she's talking about Poppy and Yes, Anastasia. She can't wait. She's like, I'm not going to go through this whole album cycle without someone asking me who Poppy is. Ask me. Just aren't ask you gonna, me. Aren't you going to ask me who Poppy is? Who's Poppy? And Tori says, Poppy is the little girl who was in silent all these years. That's all. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> This is from All These Years, the authorized biography. It says, Tori and Cindy Palmano had been working together very closely to create the beautifully stirring video for Silent All These Years. This was Cindy's first venture into moving pictures, having been primarily a still photographer before this project, and her approach resulted in a breathtaking vision of the emotions inherent in the song. Citing her as one of the most important influences in her life, Tori says, Cindy helped to put my vision out to the world, and without her, it would never have been interpreted the way that it was. She was such a pure eye that she was able to go in there and capture my soul on film well i certainly love the idea of capturing tori or anyone's soul on film still or otherwise and i think that is accurate i think it was the perfect artistic pairing to sort of bring tori's music to life visually and i missed that influence for sure yeah you want to read the next quote speaking of cindy palmano this is from the illinois entertainer march 1992 I'm working with a woman that I chose, and we get along great. And you know, it's what I look like. But then sometimes another photographer comes in that you have to work with because you can't choose all the time. They have their vision of you, and you say, no, no, I'm not comfortable with this. Because believe me, after my last album cover, you know, you learn these things. Go look at it. You live and learn. I get what she's saying. You can always tell the relationship between the subject and the photographer in the way that the subject is captured if you think someone's beautiful i think that you're going to capture their beauty on film because you see them in a beautiful way right or if you think someone's vulnerable i imagine it works the same way and that's maybe why cindy was able to capture this thing right um here's a clip from the vma pre-show interview on september 9th 1992 remember when tori was going to award shows she couldn't get enough of them well i think the video is really really special um the woman cindy palmano who directed it is such a visionary And I haven't seen a video really like that before. She dealt with the energy of the cube and walking through spaces. And 
um, it, it really takes you to another world, that video, I think. Silent All These Years was nominated in four different categories for the MTV Music Video Awards in 1992. And the categories were Best Female Video, Best New Artist, Best Cinematography, Breakthrough Video of the Year, adequately nominated in the correct categories. What do you think, David? Yes. I love that Tori was getting acknowledged, especially for the visual component of her work. Right. She's not typically known for that, I don't right. think. Right. This is a clip from JBTV in 1992 where she talks about the making of the video. When we filmed this, they had me. It's the box inside a wheel. So you couldn't see the people that were wheeling the box. But it was an incredibly small space. And uh, I rolled around in that thing for at least three hours of filming. And it was complete turns. So that physically, what you go through, going through that, mm -hmm. I really can't describe it. Finally, they decided to stop filming when I fell out of the box. And they thought I broke my hand. Because I wasn't going to be able to play the piano, which really doesn't mm -hmm. serve anybody. So. <laughs> so no more uh, takes after that one. No more takes, and um, there's so much on film that didn't get, and all my pain isn't in that video. But that director, she's one of my best friends, and she always has to find ways of, I'm either hanging from cliffs, or, you know, 20 tons of water is going to drop and blow me to pieces. She just, she gets such a kick out of watching me almost die. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I think we were married in another life or something. Uh-oh. <laughs> Who knows? And a little bit more about the mushrooms on the back cover. Remember, David, how embarrassed you were at the record store? Shame. They are mushrooms. Mm -hmm. That's um, a very late 19th century drawing, if I'm correct. And she was taking pictures of these in Devon, which is in the UK. She was taking pictures of these live mushrooms. She came back into me, and I said, well, what, are you, you, what have you been doing? She said, these pictures of these mushrooms and I said what kind of mushrooms and she couldn't stop giggling for 10 minutes I mean she was just having the greatest time so, so I guess we figured out what kind of mushrooms so they could we be we just decided that we had to share this with a few people mm -hmm. and that you did what other tunes on, on your CD do you think that uh, people should Plus check it was out called little earthquakes and we couldn't resist yeah. little <laughs> More on Cindy Palmano as well. Let's read this from Really Deep Thoughts fanzine, fall 1993. This is an interview with Cindy. How did they get her? Seriously, what's oh. your secret, RDT? Really Deep Thoughts asks, With selling all these years, it seemed like you must have worked very closely. It's hard to imagine any other video for the song. Cindy says, We had the luxury of time, though, you see, because Tori was not celebrated at that point at all. We had the time to go off and do that without her having a huge schedule to meet. Obviously, she was busy, but not to the same extent that people are when they've achieved any sort of success. I do think it's everything, towards making something good or not, is giving it the time. It's a sort of comment on modern-day life, in a sense, isn't it, that nobody has the time. How long did it take? Shooting time, we shot over two days. Preparation time, I suppose, was about two weeks. Conceptual time, I don't know. It's hard to tell, actually, because I wasn't only working on that project. It was so long ago now that I can hardly remember. Can you imagine 93? It was so long ago that I can't barely remember that if we were to get her on this show 25 years later, 26 years later. Yeah, that's a good point. What would she say? <laughs> Who? The songs of Tori. What? <laughs> okay, keep going. So in response to it was so long ago, Really Deep Thoughts replies, I'm asking you to remember things that have happened over two years ago. I'm sure you've been asked this before, but comparisons have been made between the U.S. cover for Kate Bush's The Kick Inside 
and the cover photo of Tori for Little Earthquakes. Both artists are pictured in a wooden crate. I don't know what you're talking about, actually, Cindy says. Really Deep Thoughts says, I feel silly now. Kate Bush's first album pictured her in a wooden crate. Did it? I had no idea. Oh. When Tori's album came out, there was talk among the Kate Bush fans that it might be some sort of reference to Kate. There is no such thing as a new idea. I'll tell you where the crate came from. What I make as part of a picture always is relevant. It's never there without having had a thought process behind it and around it or explored because that's the way I work. The box wasn't there just because it was a box. I had the box made specifically because it was a simple, a caution of the idea of Alice in Wonderland. Tori was descaled, hence the tiny piano too. Anything that's a good idea, if it works, it doesn't matter where it comes from. I am sure that her album cover was good. Maybe I did see it, maybe I have seen it, and maybe it did come up as a subliminal thing, but who knows where things come from. I certainly wasn't consciously aware of it, conceptual bias, or if it just works. I really like Kate Bush. I think she's great. We've had questions about some of the images in Silent all these years. The balloons in the videos. They are balloons. They are. They obviously have to do with woman. There was a male image, but we didn't have time to put it in. It was a Bunsen burner with a test tube bubbling and bubbling until it overflowed. It was a brilliant image, but there just wasn't time. It would have appeared in the bank of images in that part of the video. It has a modern look, very clean. Another thing I wanted to do in silent, which Tori absolutely refused to do, was that I wanted to smash a piano up and feed it through the square hole. And she said, no, I can't do that to the piano. It's like killing an animal. She just couldn't handle it at all. I'll just set one on fire. Years later, and that one was made by a factory. It didn't matter. Two years later. God, another eternity. (laughs) And then RDT goes on to say, where did the idea for the lyric design for the album come from? In a square? Well, because everything else was square, I suppose. I reckon that with lyrics, I don't know. I haven't followed lyrics when I'm listening to something for ages. But usually what you do is see, you listen, then you look to the lyric sheet when there's something you can't hear. You only look to it then. What about the capital letters? Oh, I just picked out the ones that I thought would look good in capital letters. In fact, we did it over the telephone. I asked Tori to sing it so that if somebody was trying to follow it, it would help relate. Then I'm afraid I moved it around a bit, according to where it came typographically. Where there was an emphasis on the word, or a word that you really heard, it really does work. Don't you think it's fascinating that Cindy chose the words? She really was sort of at the helm of the visual presentation of this Mm -hmm. entire album, even the graphic layout or the graphic design. I don't know that I was aware of that. That's a really interesting find from Really Deep Thoughts Fall 1993 because she just lays it all out there. Everything that we would have asked her on this show, including the, the not only the words, but why the images in the squares, what they were. I don't think I knew that either, that she was so involved in the booklet design, but I knew that you know she handled all the visuals, so I guess it's not that much of a stretch to realize that. I love the idea that they shot over two days that it was really relaxed, it was really casual. You can see that they had time. Tori even talks about having to be rolled in that box and almost breaking her arm, and they didn't stop until she almost broke her hand. Speaking of Cindy Palmano and the capital words, should we pick a winner for our LE poetry contest? Yes. Okay, I'm going to read them to you, and you're going to pick one without knowing who it's from, okay? I love this. And Valerie Horsefall, you still haven't reached out to claim your gift for winning the Crucify edition of our Ellie Poetry Contest. These are the poems from Girl. Number one. But my cherry tree grows bluebells, so my shame crawls away and under from your disappointment. That's one. The next one, and the last one, is Under the cherry tree she crawls, collecting bluebells while bleeding. Fallen fruits soil her knickers. 
get out of my garden with your soiled knickers but i'm giving that one the win all right chrissy olsen please email us with your mailing address i think we know you know just email us i'm so excited that i won uh and then we'll send you a a for example for example or whatever you know use your own voice use your own script and then we'll send you a little trinket of our affection thank you for playing ellie poetry everyone thank you for playing every two (laughs) well these are patreon only episodes what do you expect are you ready I'm ready. Today's capitalized words are dog, nothing, here, easy, mother. Dog, nothing, here, easy, mother. All right. Ready for my improvised poem, David? Nothing here is easy, you dog mother. Thank you. (laughs) Masterpiece. I feel like that might have actually been the script for Darren Aronofsky's mother. Excuse me, but Remember to tweet us your poem and tag it L.E. Poetry. That's Little Earthquakes Poetry for your chance to win a Tori Amos collectible from our Tori Amos collectible vault. Here's Haji and the Turbans covering Silent All These Years. Yeah, I can hear Saved again by the garbage truck I've got something to say Nobody, nothing comes Yes, I know what you think of me You never shut up All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. We are on the line with friend of the show and supporter Cecily Link. Cecily Link is a super fan of Silent All These Years, and she's here to tell us all about it. Hi, Cecily. Hi, friend. So great to talk with you and be on the show. Yay! Yay! Tell me all about your fascination with Silent All These Years. When did you first hear this amazing song? This is the very first Tori song I ever, ever heard. I heard it when I was probably about 11 years old. It was, I guess, 1996 or 97. I was listening to the local, I guess it's the rhythmic adult contemporary station. And I happened to be listening one day when I had some other song I really liked. And then it went into a DJ intro and then they went into the song. And I had never heard Tori before. In fact, I grew up on a lot of like the big like Celine Dion and a lot of these other big divas who didn't have like this kind of voice like Tori's. And I remember like I was really captured by her voice. I thought her voice was really pretty. And I was struck by some of the lyrics, especially What If I'm a Mermaid? Because at that time I was obsessed with Ariel and I still am. I have her tattooed on my ankle. And there were a couple other lines too, like, um, yes, I know what you think of me, you never shut up, which I thought was especially striking to me because as you know, 11 year old, I was told, you never tell somebody to shut up, that's supposed to be rude. But instead, this woman was singing these in a song and I thought, oh my gosh, this, it, it just really stuck with me. I didn't understand what the song was about. Like I was 11, I had never been through any of the experiences, of course, that went into Little Earthquakes, but I remembered that song. And I remember liking it and going, wow, this woman has a beautiful voice. I don't know any of her other songs. And I certainly wasn't going to risk like having my parents take me to the store and try and buy a little earthquakes because I had already gotten in trouble with my parents for getting a copy of Jewel Pieces of You and my parents not really <laughs> liking the title track. Yeah. And so I was not going to risk it with, with this. 
<laughs> but then I remember a couple of years later, like when I got in college and I still, I remembered that name and I, oh yeah, Tori Amos. This is that girl who wrote Silent all these years. And I started getting into more of her music in college and Little Earthquakes was one of the first Tori albums I got. Probably the very first one I got was Tales of a Librarian because I just kind of like, okay, I keep hearing this name. Let me try this out. And the Silent all these years just really stuck with me. And I realized as I got older, that song made so much sense to me now because it's such a companion piece to Girl. I feel like these are both songs that they sit so well on the album because they're about finding your voice and finding who you really are away from all the other bullshit that people throw at you. And I really related to especially the bridge, like, um, Years go by, will I still be waiting for somebody else to understand? Like, am I going to continue to be, to, to not find my own voice and be quiet about everything? Or am I going to finally, like, figure out who I really am? And that really resonated with me as, like, a young adult. And that's why, if I'm in the right mood, it will make me cry. It really will, that song. It just, it touches me so much. That and Girl just, like, fits so well for me. And, like, that's part of my journey of trying to find myself. That's so incredible. First of all, I can't imagine living in a home where Jewel pieces of you is too controversial. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's great to have that experience as, you know, to find this song so young and have your perspective of it change along with you changing throughout your life. That's really great. What is your favorite lyrical moment? Um, one of my favorites is What If I'm a Mermaid? Because, oh, the whole, like, it makes you think of, like, Ariel. Like, it makes you think of Ariel and the mermaid who has no voice. Mm. What if I'm a mermaid? What if I'm somebody who has no voice? I've, I've lost myself. I don't know who I am. Mm-hmm. But also, I really like the, um, th this was another line that struck me too as an 11-year-old. Um, I've got the Antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again. I didn't grow up in any kind of religious environment, so I didn't understand what does she mean by an Antichrist. And then when I listened to it as I was older, I went, oh boy, that is a burn. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and what's your favorite musical moment? The bridge. Mm. God, I love that bridge. I love it because it's higher than the rest of the song. Like the rest of the song is, you know, she's kind of singing in her chest voice a little bit. And then when she goes to years go by, she's singing in a little bit like kind of mixed head voice. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, like a cry. It's like years go by if I'm still waiting for somebody else to understand. It just it feels like a cry. And then to have it suddenly go back. But her bridges, I love the way she does her bridges. That, those are my, that's my favorite moment of the song, for sure. Mm -hmm. I never thought of that. It does sound like a cry, sort of like a scream. Or, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Cecily, it's been so great to get your perspective on the song. Share your voice with everyone by telling people where they can find you online. You have a few projects of your own, don't you? Well, I actually, I do have quite a few projects. I do music. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Cecily Link. Also, I have a podcast called Strange Phenomena, The Music of Kate Bush, which was actually inspired by your project. I'm going through every single song that Kate Bush has ever done, and I'm now on her fourth album, The Dreaming, as of this recording. And you can find me on Twitter at StrangeKateCast, and you can also find it on iTunes and wherever you get podcasts. Follow Cecily. Of course, we'll have all that on our show notes. Cecily, we'll talk again. All right. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Yay. Bye. Bye. Excuse me, but can I be here for a while? My dog won't bite if you sit real still. Got the Antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again. Yeah, I can hear that. Been saved 
dumped again by the garbage truck I've got something to say, you know, but nothing comes Yes, I know what you think of me, you never shut up Twin Shadow with his cover of Silent. We are back, and we are on the line with Stephen Rains. He's a poet, the first poet laureate in West Hollywood, in fact, and he teaches writing workshops in West Hollywood. Hi, Stephen. Hello. If you don't know Stephen, he is a silent all these years, super freak. Would you call yourself that? (laughs) I'll accept the title. Okay, good. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to discover Tori's music? What made you so passionate about Silent all these years? Give us the story. Uh, well, I first discovered the song Silent all these years through the video. I was babysitting for a neighbor, and I had no knowledge of childcare. Um, the children were already asleep, and I didn't have cable at my house. So it was really exciting to channel surf, and I missed the first part of the silent all these years video but i just clicked on it and i saw this woman rolling around in a box in this kind of weird outfit and i stopped and i thought like oh is is that amy grant like what what is she doing and maybe it was the long hair or i hadn't heard anyone singing similarly before but um i was kind of captivated at, at who this was when the video ended i wrote her name on my green english folder and went to my local mall a couple days later and i bought the cassette single i listened to that cassette single on repeat i think the draw was that the song was so dramatic and emotive and big and it it mirrored the feelings I had as a 16-year-old gay, awkward, kind of nerdy boy in the over-masculinized Midwest. It, there was something about the song that really resonated with me. With that initial impression, do you feel like you were responding to the lyrics or more just the music and the way it sounded or both? Well, that first impression watching it on the screen, I think it was it was kind of hard to catch the lyrics. Um or all of them at least, or understand what they were about. But there was something about the song I I really felt. And that's why I wrote it down, because I wanted to hear it again and learn more. Or kind of, in a way, it was kind of like this instant love. It was listening to the song with like the opening lyric, you know, of the song, which is this kind of asking for permission, but also this apologetic, as if there's something to be sorry for, where she says, like, excuse me, but can I be you for a while? Like, to me, like, oh, how how desperately I wanted to be someone, like, charming and cooler and more attractive. Most of all, I wanted to not be living the life I was living. I was made fun of in the halls of school. And even worst of all, like, I was coming to terms with the sexual abuse I'd suffered at the hands of a neighbor. And so this whole thing about suppression and recognizing someone's voice and that experience and years of it permeated my perception of things so much that I heard that song with only projection and somehow I ignored certain lyrics and that the song was really about 
being victimized and overcoming it to me. And my friend Dan later said that due to his own kind of sexual abuse, like he thought the song was about the same thing. And so I, I think there's something about finding one's voice that resonated for a lot of younger gay men and also victims of abuse. And so that time of my life when I heard that song was also the time I first had sex with a guy and I first started writing. And then I also heard Tori Amos. So it was really this time of like spontaneous combustion. I love how you put that spontaneous combustion. In the 20 some odd years since then, has the song walked with you through life or how has your relationship with the song changed? Actually, I actually rarely listen to the song. Um, and for this interview, I. I listened to it a few more times and it was really sweet to hear it. You know, she she said in an interview, it's that interview disc where she said that she couldn't write silent all these years anymore because she's not silent. And the same is true for me. You know, if I heard that song for the first time today, I don't think it would have that resonance. And, you know, that, that young boy who played that Kasengel so often, I don't even recognize him so much. I, I live out loud now. I've published autobiographical books dealing with my life experience. And maybe because my ears hear it differently now, but I also feel as if Tori emotes something different now when she sings the song. You know, the Gold Dust recording, you know, of course her voice isn't as high as it used to be, but I also hear it as if she's greeting an old friend or that it's someone from the past. Well, that's fair. I agree that it's looking back at probably the way you don't recognize it. She can't sing silent all these years anymore because she's a mother looking maybe at, you know, a young girl going through it and trying to empathize or trying to give her guidance. Um, as a writer and a poet yourself, has Tori as a lyricist, been um, a point of inspiration for you? Not necessarily stylistically, although maybe, but just more so in terms of wanting to express yourself through writing and words? Um, I had actually kind of claimed the identity as a writer just slightly before discovering her. Although, you know, there's something about Tori, her lyrics, and also in interviews where she almost speaks in metaphors. There's something about the way that she talks about things and, and certain lyrics where I feel like it goes to an emotional, like it, there's some way that it draws our emotions and not our intellect. And I think that she does that really well. I don't even know if it's intentional. I think that could just be her way of communicating and conveying experiences. But yeah, I, I do find her incredibly inspiring. That's interesting that the experience of her music and even just, you know, her in conversation that the first response is more emotional um, as opposed to intellectual. It sounds like that's what you're saying. And I would agree with you that that's my experience, too. As the poet laureate of West Hollywood, which is, if you guys don't know what that means, it's a, the city poet, right? You were the poet of the city. Yes. Um, did you run on a campaign of uh, making sign all these years the official song of West Hollywood? Did you did you run on that campaign? No, I'm sorry, I didn't. No, and there wasn't even a campaign, unfortunately. There, Wait, can you there get reelected? No there was just a committee. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, next time, see see next time. Can uh... I know, and I'm sure that will win everyone over. Did the process of going before the committee at all resemble the audition from the end of Flashdance? No. No. <laughs> well, God no, it damn didn't. it. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> much to my surprise, it didn't. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Stephen Rains. He is a poet. He's an author. He's an activist. He is a super fan and a super freak of Silent All These Years. And you can find him online at stephenrains.com. That's Stephen with a V and Rains, R-E-I-G-N-S. And of course, we'll link to it in our show notes. Thank you for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Bye. 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 You think there's a heaven where some screams have gone I 
got 25 bucks and a cracker Do you think it's enough to get us there? Cause what if I'm a mermaid in these jeans of his With her name still on it hey, But I don't care Cause sometimes I say Sometimes I hear my voice And it's been I know. Exhausting. Already. <laughs> I know. We finally made it to the live section. Woo! We're at the live section, David. How does that feel? Well, we always enjoy the live section. I so do. We enjoy every section. We're always in the moment. The, in the whatever moment. section we're doing is my favorite. Oh, so okay, now good. it's the live section. Oh, good. This song has not really evolved too much over time. There's a few pieces that we'll talk about, and the bridge especially. We'll track the bridge a little bit. But for the most part, would you say that through the years, this song has remained a staple, has remained sort of intact? If I identify this song in any way, it's that it's been around for a long time and it hasn't changed that much. Right. Much like me. In 1991 is the earliest known promo performance of the song and it's in Montreux. Shall we? Oh, so good. Oh, so good. I wonder what she's wearing. Oh, wait. Uh... Here's October 30th, 1991, the Nikki Campbell Show on the BBC, and it's uh, a radio show, and she's included the background vocals. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I can't believe that the initial performances of this song were sort of fleshed out. I guess she was kind of like finding what her lifestyle was going to be. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Like, how do I want to present these songs? Do I want them to sound more like they are in the album? Will people accept them on just piano? So. Right. Silent all these years go by Will I still be waiting for somebody else to understand? Years go by if I'm stripped of my beauty And the orange clouds raining in my head Interesting. 
Why do you think she chose to do that? Um, I think maybe in the recording of it, the double harmony was very important in the recording that maybe she thought it was necessary live. Mm-hmm. When really, maybe maybe it was because of this, she discovered the backbone of the song was not necessarily that part. Do you think there was still a little piece of her that thought that her work needed to be kind of polished and produced and that's what was happening at the time? So if she was going to go out there... She didn't want to be so naked about it oh, at the beginning. I mean, yeah. I don't know, but that's that could be a thing. Like, mm. oh, here I am, girl on her piano, singing about something really intense. Mm-hmm. Let's have a little sheen on it. Yeah, yeah, maybe interesting because it is ninety one. I mean, she's just starting this cycle. Mm-hmm. Also from nineteen ninety one, this is a clip from the Jonathan Ross show, and this is her first appearance on British television. She performed silent all these years with a live band, including strings, flute. And, ready for this, another keyboardist. Why didn't, there's a quote about this performance. You want to read it, David? I do. Tori recalls, I almost ruined the whole thing. I was looking at that girl on the TV screen and thinking, if I stop, will she keep playing? If she stops, do I keep playing? It was all live, and for three seconds, I froze in the middle of silent, and I thought I was never going to get it together again. I just panicked. Here it is from the Jonathan Ross Show, November 1991. Silent What if every time she plays silent all these years, she freezes and it's like always, excuse me, McKenna. I mean, like that's where she gets it back. She catches a glimpse of herself in the reflection on the the lid of the piano. Right. She's like, wait, what? Excuse Is she? Am I? What? Uh, uh." (laughs) I've heard that story before, though, um, about her freezing up or almost freezing up Uh and I don't know. Poor Tori with that vulnerability. Yeah. Like YKTR never made it this far, this but something's happening here. I'm on like the precipice of something. And so. Yeah. Wow. But it's funny the way she's dissociating in that, like, will this girl keep playing if I stop or mm-hmm. if I, if I keep playing? Well, she's the way she describes that is almost an out of body experience mm-hmm. is really interesting. And this is neither here nor there, but is she wearing the outfit from the album cover? At that performance, possibly yes. Much as she did at Montro, mm-hmm. that she she's that... like, I only got the one. <laughs> this is my stage outfit. <laughs> Good note. So those were her ninety-one performances. You want to go into the ninety-two tour? That first tour. For the purposes of this show, we're going to say that any show she did in nineteen ninety-two was part of the Earthquakes tour, right, David? Yes. You know, for archival purposes, and I'll tell you something. There are so many lost set lists. That's to be expected for any artist starting their journey, right? Wouldn't you say? Like, I, yes, especially back then when there was no internet. Yeah. People, like, what would you have done? Written it down by yourself in the dark and right. kept it forever yeah. in your closet? And if you're only discovering Tori for the first time at a tiny little bar, you're not going to know the songs. She was really hustling it. She would play anywhere. <laughs> The airport. From your grandma's house to the airport. Yeah. She was there. <laughs> she was there. So every surviving set list from 1992 has silent all these years on it. So I'm going to be bold 
and say that she performed it at 100% of the 92 shows. I support you in your boldness, as God. I so often do. And uh, this is the one time when I feel like it won't end in folly. <laughs> Um, On September 20th in Charleston, West Virginia, she talks a little bit about how the song got banned from Blacksburg, Virginia. I'm going to tell you a story because this song makes different kind of sense after I tell it. My grandmother and I, I actually hated her. She was a real meanie. And um, she loved virgins. Nothing wrong with virgins. There's a time and a place for that. I totally respect that. But I had different things on my mind. And um, I knew it was up, basically. I was six. And, um, hey, you see a picture of Jim Morrison, you're not stupid, you know what's coming. So we fought, and she would, you know, make me go pray, and uh, I would spit in her jello, and this just went on for years and years. Anyway, after this album came out, I got one letter, just one, from a town in the whole world. Just one town. They didn't know my grandmother's from there. There's no way of knowing. And uh, it makes total sense. They said, uh, we're very sorry we can't play this song, but it is shit. So it gives me great pleasure to play this as much as I possibly can. Oh, we're in 1993. Things look very similar to 92. The cranberries were everything. What? What was she doing in 93? Promoting Pink? Right after the tour, there was a little bit of time that she was still promoting Little Earthquakes. Okay. You know, early in January, February, March, I think she was still, would do any radio show that called. There's that performance of Sugar that she did at that time on the keyboard. But this is a clip from Q101, March 3rd, 1993. Oh, we're early in 1993. Early, yeah. Okay. It's early. It's early. And, you know, silent all these years has always been there to usher in the other girls. Right. So you found a girl who thinks really deep thoughts. What's so amazing about really deep thoughts? Boy, you best pray that I bleed real soon. How's that thought for you? My screen got lost in a paper cup. You think there's a heaven where some screams are gone and I got 25 bucks in a cracker. Do you think it's enough to get us there? 1994, David. Sure was. Sure was a good year. <laughs> Pretty good year. Oh, dear. There's 120 or so surviving set lists from 1994, and more every day thanks to Lisa Ridlon, who recently unearthed Elmira, New York, uh, which was a fantastic show that had never been heard before. So more every day. We're finding these wonderful old recordings. It's great. If you happen to have an old recording out there that you would like us to digitize, let us know. Send it to us, and we will make it happen. But right now, there's about 120 or so surviving set lists, and only 16 do not include Silent All These Years. And I call bullshit on that. Really? I have to imagine those are incomplete. <laughs> well, those have bootlegs that exist. I have as to well. imagine someone altered the bootlegs. <laughs> no, I maybe like when she was doing double headers or something, but I still find it strange that there'd be a single show at this point in her career where she wouldn't play that. Where she wouldn't play, play that, that song. song. Yeah. Well, the majority of those shows are at the end of the tour so it's like she's jamming through the tour every night silent all these years and then suddenly it just doesn't appear one night and then everybody's like what and then like keeps 
playing it, playing it, playing it. And then all of a sudden, maybe a month or two later, it's gone for two shows. And it's like, what are you doing to me, girl? Yeah. And then like towards the end of the tour, it was gone a lot. She's like, I always invite Silent to the party. And one night I just left her off the list and we still had fun. <laughs> right. So <laughs> <laughs> she debuted the song on the first night of the tour in Newcastle, February 24th. But we will play 13th of August in Austin. Can you imagine, first of all, if you hadn't given me that information and you would just played it, I'd be like, that's not Newcastle. <laughs> it's collusion but if we are to believe she didn't perform it at 16 shows that's a little over 10 percent of the surviving set lists that we do have that don't include silent all these years so we can basically accept that she performed silent all these years at 85 percent of the 94 shows that's what we're gonna say yeah i'm sure that's pretty close yeah 85 percent. okay are you ready to drop in david i'm always ready are you ready drop, to drop me drop? off silent all these years it only appears 51 times in 1996. Mm. Do you still think collusion? No. I mean, our record is pretty mm. complete, right? Mm. Yeah. I still find it hard to believe she only did it 27% of the time. Yeah. I mean, her body of work had grown exponentially by that point, and she'd performed it at pretty much every show or performance right. she'd given up until that point. So she, she was, was ready like, to give let it her go rest. a little bit. Uh, yeah. Early on the tour, she did it in the United States when she went on Unplugged on MTV. And here that is right now. Excuse me, but can I be you for a while? My dog won't bite if you sit real still. I got the Antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again. Yeah, I can hear. Been saved again by the garbage truck. Got something to say, I know, but not... Do you think she had a little PTSD from that UK performance where she almost froze? Because she had a similar experience during this taping, right? It's got to be hard, especially when you're there and the lights are up in the audience, you know? You're not used to everybody seeing everybody see you. I know. That's got to be intense. And, and she says that, right? She's like, I know you're out there, but it's like, you're really out there. Or whatever she <laughs> Yeah, <says>. exactly. <laughs> now, this is the first time I heard it. November 9th, 1996 in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the Pope Joy Hall. Thank you. 
Shall we move on to 97? Already, yes. Here is the first performance from 1997. This is from the live from New York VHS tape or the Rain Benefit concert as we affectionately refer to it. Let's play that. Roll it, Ollie. Yeah, I can heal and saved again by the garbage truck. Got something to say, I know, but nothing comes. Yes, I know what you think of me, never should have. Yeah, I can heal it, but what if I'm a mermaid in these jeans of his with her name still on? A couple of other promo performances. She did this song on Rosie O'Donnell's show on the 24th of January, which was the next day. Yeah, I can hear that. But what if I'm a mermaid in these jeans of his with her name still on it? Hey, but I don't care. Sometimes I said, sometimes I hear my voice and it's been. Same haircut. <laughs> Rolled out of bed and right onto Rosie. Yeah. Rosie really loved Tori. I think a- she still does. I remember a couple of times where she was like crafting, like talking about playing Tori in her garage. Really? That's crafting. so yeah. funny. Yeah. I loved the Rosie O'Donnell show back then. Back then, yeah. I watched it every day. When she was in love with, with Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. Yeah. Oh, man. I oh. know. And when she'd have Tori on there and she would just play clips, Yeah. she always had like audio for guests loaded right. and she'd hit like Cornflake Girl and then like <laughs> sing to Tori and Tori yeah. was like, what is What's happening? happening? But it was cute. On January 29th, 1997, Tori performed the song on David Letterman. Let's play that as well. Saved again by the garbage truck Got something to say, you know, but nothing comes Yes, I know what you think of me You never should have Yeah, I can heal But what if I'm a mermaid In these jeans of his with her are important performances they are and we've referenced this one um this is with the hurt intro from the house band right yeah when they come back yeah right good ear david <laughs> i got two. Ow! 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 ow 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 i hurt myself ow today <laughs> oh funny 1998 tori performed silent all these years 22 times on the plug 98 tour she only performed it at 17 percent of the shows this is from october 24th vh1 storytellers we played the little clip from her talking about it earlier the story attached to it we played that earlier but here's the song what if i'm a mermaid in these jeans of yours with her name still on it but i don't care sometimes i said sometimes i hear my voice and it's been Dallas and back. 
silent in space. In space, no one can hear you scream because you're silent. She only did it eight times. Isn't that shocking? That is shocking. But most of the time she was with the band. She only had two songs, maybe three on Mm -hmm. the longer shows that were solo and then maybe an encore solo. She had a giant catalog already. I know. Uh, Playing it eight times is 20% of the shows. Let's play one of my favorites. And this is from the one-off solo show she did in London, England, October 29th, 1999. This will be the last time she performs the bridge in the original arrangement with all the notes. So here Mm. we go. Here she is about six weeks later at K-Rock Acoustic Christmas. Two thousand one, David. Mm. She performed it fifteen times on this tour for a total of twenty-seven point eight percent of the shows. This is September thirtieth, two thousand one, in Kissimmee, Florida. It's the very first time she does the new bridge arrangement. kind of a more mature woman almost looking back and there's a a vulnerability but a poignancy to it also what do you think i agree i think the first time i ever heard it with the change in not only the octave but the way she was reflecting on that moment it had a big impact on me and it made me really sad i guess poignant is a really good word for it now she puts more emphasis on the the years go by the repeating years go by, and I think that really is her just acknowledging the passage of time and where she is at this point. That was Scarlet walking. She's got a heavy foot. On the Scarlet's Walk tour, Tori performed Silent All These Years 13 times. Guess how many percent of the shows that was? Like two? 13%. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not good at math. That was the tour that never ended. I think it's still going on. I know. Somewhere, Scarlet's still walking. Um, In 2003, she went 
on to do the Lotta Pianos tour, and on that tour on its own, she did the song five more times for 17% of those shows. This is from March 10th, 2003, the Oxygen concert that she did on television. Here we go. So this is a little from the Librarian promo cycle, November 3rd, 2003, from AOL Sessions. Hi, I'm Tori Amos. Welcome to Sessions at AOL. Here we are in 2005, and she performed Silent All These Years 24 times for a total of 30% of the shows. It's come back a little bit more on this tour than in previous tours, I think. Mm. She seemed to be in a different place. I think she was processing some things, and we've determined that the song is kind of comforting for her. A soft place to land for her, maybe. So right. I think maybe it was more present with her for that reason. In 2007, Tori embarked on her American Doll Posse World Tour and performed Silent All These Years 17 times for a total of 20% of the shows. As Pip. This is what I mean, because me and a gun got the Pip treatment, but Silent All These Years never has. That wouldn't make any sense. I know. Could you, could you imagine? <laughs> and if it did, it might sound a little something like this. Silent All These Years. Years go by, will I still be waiting for somebody else to understand? Years go by, and if I'm stripped of my beauty and the orange clouds that are raining in my head. Years go by, will I choke on my tears till finally there is nothing left? One more casualty, you know we're too easy, easy, easy. Just kidding, that was a cover. And we'll link to it in you our show You think name. you can make her silent. Sorry. <laughs> That's a quote. <laughs> silent All These Years has never gotten old for me. Silent All These Years, I could hear it at every show. I feel like it's, like you said earlier, an anthem, you know? And it's it has a place. And when it comes, when it shows up at a show, you honor it. You don't get up to go to the bathroom. Because without that song, we wouldn't be here. She wouldn't be having this concert. That song really broke her. And I think you just have to honor that. You don't have to get mad. I'm not mad. I didn't say anything. <laughs> I just had that soapbox still next to my sofa. So I like agree with you. And I was actually thinking about this recently, where maybe we went through phases where the song had been around for a long time. And if we were at a band show, let's say, where there were only two coveted solo slots, that might not have been a 
choice right. we would have made right. right for something we wanted like, to hear Dutchman. but this is a really important song this is a defining moment in tori's career and i absolutely would put it okay if i had to design a set list for my final tori show ever oh my god don't say that i know i, I know i know you hate that i just gave me I a know. little pang of I sadness know. but if i were to do that i would put silent all these years on the set list of course so, yeah you would have to i know would it be the last song no but it would be there mm-hmm. it would be in a good slot right yes anyway let's move on to 2009 shall we this was the sinful attraction tour and you want to know what it was it was sinful and it was attractive on the 2009 tour tori performed silent all these years seven times for 11 percent of the shows 11 and a half percent you want to do an australian performance of the song why not why not we haven't done anything from australia in this episode this is sometimes si- i hear my voice and it has an australian accent it's weird <laughs> this is november 16 2009 in sydney which was an extension of the 2009 tour but it was like a its own like summer tour she performed it seven times and here is manchester tennessee at bono ruru saved again by the garbage truck got something to say and all but nothing comes yes i know what you think of me you never shut up yeah i can't hear it what if I'm a mermaid in these jeans of his with good names still on it here? I don't care sometimes. Can you believe we're already at 2011? It's a whirlwind. She performed Silent All These Years on the Night of Hunters tour 10 times for a total of 21% of the shows. Here's the debut on September 28th in Helsinki. Silent All These Years go by when I still, still be waiting to understand. Years go by if I'm stripped, stripped of my beauty and the clouds raining in my head. Years go by. Well, I choke till finally there's nothing left. One more casualty, you know, we're too easy. In 2012, Tori performed Silent All These Years on the Gold Dust Orchestral Tour five times. Here she is doing it with the orchestra on October 1st in Rotterdam. Damn, Rotterdam. Hot damn, Rotterdam. That was a good one. 
this song needed to be with an orchestra. This is one of those moments where it's like, okay, we can all talk about Tori's track listing on Gold Dust, and maybe maybe we all wanted some of the darker songs like Suede or Cruel to really be worked up with the orchestra, right? But Silent All These Years needed a string arrangement. Right. And I'm really glad it appeared on, on uh, the album, Gold Dust, and then, of course, in the tour. Gold Dust almost became like a career retrospective. Mm-hmm. So I think it deserved a place there, and it was interesting. I think the song has aged well and tori and we have grown with it so i think it's really poignant to hear her sing it now at this point and in her career and with that arrangement and with the bridge dropping Uh yeah like as an older woman you right yeah in 2014 she performed silent all these years on kutx austin and i want to play a little clip from this um because it's rare at this point in her career to hear silent all these years on the radio as a live performance. So here it is. Excuse me, but can I be you for a while? My dog won't bite if you sit real still. Got the Antichrist in the kitchen yelling at me again. Yeah, I can hear that. But saved again by the garbage truck. Got something to say, you know, but nothing comes. Yes, I know what you think of me, you never shut up. Yeah, I can hear that. What? In 2014-15, she performed Silent All These Years 24 times for a total of 32% of the shows. Golly. That tour was amazing. She was being 50 and still rocking. That was her thing, right? <laughs> She's uh, doing a lot of girl power high kicks. Yeah, it was great. It was a great tour. The Native Invader Tour. Well, we've made it to 2017. Invade me. She performed the song nine times. Nine Nine times. times in concert. These two that we've selected, I think, are my favorite. Ooh. This is a promo performance that she did on November 11th, 2017 from CBS This Morning, The Saturday Sessions. The Reindeer King is amazing. Mm. It's like so very moving. But here's Silent All These Years. CBS This Morning, November 11th, 2017. Final time she's performed Silent All These Years to date, and that would be November 24th, 2017, in Seattle, Washington, the day after Thanksgiving. And here we are. Well, I love the way we communicate. Your eyes focus on my funny left shape. Let's hear what you think of me now, but baby, don't look up. The sky is falling. Your mom. 
Constant throughout her touring life. Constant. Throughout our lives in general. Yeah. I don't even think we realize the impact the song has had on us. Could you imagine being our age and never having heard this song? Can you do a percentage of what percentage of our life this song has been around? <laughs> right. The way we do for each tour? Right. So as of now, this is 2019, so it's been around for 28 years, this song, right? Oh. I would say about 95% of my life it's been around. I'm 31. Well, <laughs> I am bad at math. Anyway, I think it's time to say goodbye. What do you think? Yeah, on that note. Oliver, give us something dancey. Mm. Give us something fun. Oh, Oliver, our sound man. He always nails it. Thanks, Oliver. He's in the booth. In the booth, raising the roof. David, we did it. I know. We, you've been in my house for the last month working on silent all these years. What are you gonna do when I leave? I don't know. Work on You'll precious finally things. Finally, have your life back. No. Nope. Precious <laughs> things is next. I think that might be even more difficult. I think so. Yeah. Oh, especially the live version because that song can change. It sure can. That song can morph. <laughs> Let's just bask in the afterglow of silent all these years for a second, shall mm. we? It uh, is the gatekeeper after all. Yeah. I picture silent all these years like the chaperone from A League of Their Own when the all-female baseball league is touring the country. And oh, she's yeah. like, come on, girls. No, you can't go out. <laughs> a lady reveals nothing. That's silent all these years at this point. <laughs> Keeping the rest in line. The cigarette hanging out of her mouth. Yeah. Are you girls drinking? <laughs> Great. Give me a swig. <laughs> I've seen it all. <laughs> oh, silent. <laughs> Well, this has been fun. If you like what we do, you can support us by following all of our social media. We're at Songs of Tori Amos across Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find us there. You can subscribe to our newsletter on our website, songsoftoriamos.com, where you'll also find all our show notes from all our episodes. If you have anything to say to us via email, you can write us at songsoftoriamos at gmail.com or call our hotline, 323-296-9955. If you really like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash songsoftoriamos, where you'll find many different thank you gifts for many different levels. So go thank yourself. <laughs> go thank yourself. Anything else, David? No. How do we feel about silent now that we've been everything but silent about it <laughs> i feel closer to it i do too i feel like this song i underestimate the impact this song has had in my life that to think of what my life might be like without it like we said at the beginning it's such an unassuming song and that we take it for granted as fans because the song has been around for so long and it's magic and genius is now unspoken we just know it is so we do take it for granted we've kind of been glibly saying that it's an old friend and whatever but it's really true and i think like an old friend that's been around for a long time and you think or feel like it's always going to be there that's kind of how we've treated silent but I really appreciate it for its consistency. Right. And I'm glad that it's given to us. And we should never take friends for granted nor songs for granted. So thank you, Silent. Thank for you, all Silent. Given us. We'll be back next time with Precious Things. Run faster, Eve. Bye. Bye.
can we drink beer for a while? You think that's what it was? My can won't no, I think pop it was, if you... No, I think it was more like, I've been here. Silent all these beers. Beers go by. <laughs> Great. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoryamis.com.